Good evening. Welcome to the War Committee. Mr. Secretary, would you please take attendance? Uh, I shall, Mr. Chair. Um, in reverse order, uh, Stephen Rines, present. I don't think he's with us tonight. Uh, Judith Steele. I saw her on the, uh, she's Steve on the Zoom. She's on the Zoom. Uh, Ronald Sia. Present. Amanda Seria. She's present, I see her. She's muted. I'm here. There she is. Uh, Jeremiah O'Connor. Julia Maxwell. Present. Thank you. Timothy Lyons. Present. Dream Langless. Kristen Cosiel. She's not going to be here tonight. Uh, Julia Joyce. Present. Thank you. Jay Fumling. He's on Jay's the call. Yeah. Jay. Uh, Allison Gagnon. Lori Connor. I'm here. Thank you. Allison, sorry. No, sorry. I'm slow. <laughs> uh, Lori Conley. Yes. Thank you. And I am present, Thomas Caldwell. And yeah, this is Jay. I heard my name. Thank you, Jay. Uh, Thomas Caldwell, Secretary, present. Uh, Mr. Chair, David Humphrey is also present. Thank you. I declare quorum, call the meeting to order. Um, we had three agenda items. One was to have a, a brief with regards to the budget from uh, Nick, the town administrator. The, the intent there was just to have sort of a basic update of where the budget's at right now, uh, what are some of the things that we're looking at going into the annual town budget, as well as at the um, fall town meeting. We decided uh, just to kick that down the road a little bit. It was just basically to be basic, informative, uh, not a pressing need in light of uh, the importance of the MBTA zoning, um, we, just, we, we, we chose just to go with that. So we have the town planner, Mr. Uh, Tim Zawinski. And if that's, uh, if I mispronounce that name, I'd be happy to be corrected. And uh, is that correct, Tim Zawinski? Uh, flawless. Thank you. Great, thank you. Wonderful. Mr. Chair? Yes, oh. Judy. Thank you. Um, I had my hand up, but I, I realize you're a little light on people looking at computers tonight, so I just jumped in. Um, I was wondering if you could go over the rules for hybrid and the number of members that should be present in person to have what they would consider a hybrid quorum. In our case, it would be eight people. 
And OML could be triggered if we do not have eight. I counted six at the table. I could be wrong. That's annoying. What's that? That's annoying. I, I believe that Nick, Nick Milano told us um, over the winter that it, we don't have to have eight people in person. We just need to have eight people total. Okay, so the information we had at the beginning of last year was incorrect. It, it may be. I wasn't. Um, oh, okay. I, I mm -hmm. just came up over the winter. Okay. Thank you, Karen. You're welcome. Okay. And thank you, Judy. Thank you, Judy. Um, it does bring up. I think the purpose of tonight, and this is why I had asked him to come and t to, t to talk to us about the MBTA zoning, is to lay out some of the very basic principles here to start to create for us, the Warren Committee, our roadmap uh, for what's going to be expected of us, of how we're going to assist the town at town meeting with regards to this issue. Um, I don't I don't foresee a what I would call like a, a vigorous and hardcore debate on the issue. I think it might be a little early for that. We are certainly not voting on anything. There's nothing here before us. So Judy's concerns about, you know, open meeting are important is the purpose of open meeting is to make sure that our deliberations and our votes are open to the public. We want to have a quorum and we want the public to be, you know, invited and aware of what we're doing. Um, I, I think the purposes of tonight's meeting, we're going to naturally avoid some of those concerns because, again, I, I, I think we, there should be vigorous questioning in um, a spirit of citizenship and of, uh, of a common purpose with the town planner, Tim Zawarinski, right? This is not an inquisition, right? Uh, and then we, we would be likely to have, you know, raise our issues and have some concerns, but I don't think there's a time, this is a debate issue. We're definitely not voting. Um, so, and, and that, that was our purpose tonight. So, what I had asked him to please do for us is to give us like 20, 30 minutes of the basics as if we were complete lay people, um, completely new to the issue of the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, the why's, the how's, what is expected of us. Because eventually what's going to happen is the Warren Committee is going to be pre presented with an article that's going to go into the warrant at the town meeting for the town's vote. And we're going to make a recommendation to the town. So at such time as we're called upon to be able to render our recommendation to the town, we need to be among some of the most informed and educated people on the issue in the town. And I would like to start at this point with the assumption that we're among the least educated and least informed so that we can, you know, build this from the ground up. All right. And, and, and so, Mr. Zerwinski, I, I give you the floor 
Uh, would you please educate us with regards to what what is this MBTA zoning that the town is looking at? It's certainly, and, and and thank you very much for having me. Be, before we get started, though, I, I I think I need to be promoted to panelists so that I can share my screen because um, I, I don't have the capability to show my slides right now. Okay, if you can bear with us. I, I believe I've just done that. Thank you, Karen. There we go. Th th thank you very much for that. Um, and, and one more really, really quick thing um, be, before I start, because I, I was actually very intrigued by the, the, the idea of a, of a hybrid quorum. Um, so I looked it up and um, the guidance on open meeting law, while we have the sort of current suspension of the traditional open meeting law in place, uh, and this is off the Commonwealth's website, any or all members of a public body may continue participating in meetings remotely. The open meeting law's requirement that a quorum of the body and the chair be physically present at the meeting location remains suspended. So um, you all are in the clear, um, but um, may maybe not forever um, if, if we go back to sort of the regular open meeting law. Um, so before before I get started, you know, formally, and I, I've got I've got a, a number of slides that um, I hope are are super basic. Um, you know, we have been doing this for for a while. I've given versions of this presentation um, to the planning board, to the select board, in a number of public forums. Um, you know, the the purpose of a lot of those is to sort of like bring people along in the development of this zoning um, and obviously provide opportunities for feedback at, at different points. So um, you're not going to get the super, super basic presentation because we're just out of super basic territory right now. Um, we're, we're in the thick of it. Um, but if at any moment um, something's unclear, you know, feel free to stop me. I know it's kind of tough sometimes with a hybrid meeting um, to kind of, you know, uh, pipe up. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to stay as long as it takes to answer any questions and, and just want to make sure that everyone understands that, um, you know, I am available um, as, as the town planner. Um, I, I've talked to a number of more committee members already who have kind of expressed an interest in this zoning. Um, give me a call, shoot me an email. Um, you know, it's, it's a priority to speak to members of the Warren Committee. Um, so I'm happy to answer any questions and, and provide, provide you with the resources that you need. Um, so I'm gonna share my screen and throw up a few quick slides. Um, and actually, I think you need to allow me to share the screen now because um, it said host disabled screen sharing. There we go. So I'm gonna throw this up on full screen. Can everyone see that slide? It's a picture of uh, Capen Street? Yes. Wonderful, thank you. Um, so what is the MBTA Communities Law? Um, back at the beginning of January, 2021, um, there was a huge economic development bill um, that passed through the legislature, um, a ton of stuff in it. Um, but one of the elements of it was a amendment to Chapter 40A, which is the Zoning Act, um, and it's called Section 3A. Um, you know, so sometimes you'll hear interchangeably MBTA Communities, MBTA Communities Act, MBTA Communities Law, Section 3A, 3A. These are all the same thing. And it is a... Um, a law that's meant to spur housing production in the Commonwealth via loosening zoning regulations in areas near transit. So the requirements of 3A 
are that an MBTA community, and MBTA community is a defined term in the statute. There's 175 of them. Um, you know, f- for shorthand, anyone that has MBTA service, whether it's bus, ferry, commuter rail, rapid transit, um, is considered to be an MBTA community shall have at least one zoning district of reasonable size in which multifamily housing, which is defined in statute as three or more units, is permitted as of right and meets a number of other criteria set forth in the statute. And and some of those criteria include a minimum gross density of 15 units per acre. Um, The district is not more than a half a mile from a commuter rail station, subway station, ferry terminal, or bus station, if applicable. Um, the zoning can't have age restrictions, and the zoning has to be suitable for families with children. Um, and then in the statute, it lays out, you know, a penalty for noncompliance, which is basically that the, the the town is ineligible for certain grant programs, including MassWorks, the Housing Choice Grant Program, and the Local Capital Projects Fund. Um, so this is January of 21. Um, this slide is a little bit of a paraphrase of the language of the statute, but it's not that much of a paraphrase. This is really the bare bones of it. Um, by right, which means no special permit, no discretionary review by the planning board or the board of appeals. You effectively can go in and grab a building permit for a multifamily building, just like you would for a single family house or an addition or a deck or or something like that. Um, minimum gross density, 15 units per acre. Um, it's a little more complicated than it sounds, but it just means, you know, this is the, the, the residential density um, that they're looking for across the entire zoning district. Um, no age restrictions. We'll get to the half mile um, radius in a minute because that gets even more complicated. Um, but no age restrictions means um, you can't have 55 plus senior only. Um, you know, your zoning has to be open for any type of multifamily building. Um, and then suitable for families with children. The way that the state has gone on to sort of clarify that is simply your zoning can't put a restriction on the number of bedrooms in any given multifamily development. So you can't say we're going to allow any multifamily development as long as it has only one bedrooms. Um, you've got to allow the market to provide, you know, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, four bedrooms, you know, et cetera. Can I ask a question? I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, can, I, can I just talk into this? I just had a question. Do we know what the, it says the, the, the impact. I don't, I don't know what those actual programs are. I'm not familiar with them. So do we have a financial, is there a number where it says a mass works, housing choice and local capital projects? Do we have a number of if I've, we decided to bail out of this, how much it would hurt us? I've got a slide on that. Um, so it, it comes a little bit later, but we can we can definitely talk about that um, and, and also sort of the implications for noncompliance. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely be getting to that. Thank you. So the, the law is about drafting zoning. Um, so it's conceivable that there are cities and towns in the Commonwealth that already have compliant zoning districts where multifamily zoning is allowed and it's 15 units per acre and it's within, you know, a, a radius of transit. Um, and, and you could sort of count that as your compliant district. Um, Milton does not have any compliant districts. Um, we do have some multifamily housing in Milton. None of it is allowed by right. All of it is allowed by special permit. Um, a lot of it has age restrictions, um, and, and some of it isn't at the density level 
um, that that is kind of required by the law. Um, so you know we, we've done some things that are that are kind of greater than single family houses, but nothing where we could say, okay, these are compliant districts, we're all good. Um, so we're going to have to create new zoning districts is really sort of just the, the upshot of this. Um, this is a map that shows that half a mile radius from transit. Um, this is a map that was developed um, via a tool from the Massachusetts Housing Partnership um, that basically just kind of every every station in the system gets its radius drawn around it. Um, and so you can kind of see starting from left to right, um, Mattapan Station to Capon Street to Valley Road to Central Ave to Milton Station, um, and, and eventually up in the upper right, um, you know, you get um, Cedar Grove Station. So one, one of the implications, and this is something that we commented upon really early when, um, you know, the law first came out, was we said, well, look, the Mattapan trolley line kind of hugs the northern border of town, and a significant fraction of that half mile radius is actually either in the middle of the river or in the city of Boston, which we have no zoning control over. And so, you know, we raised that as a concern of, you know, we've got to put a certain amount of density in a zoning district, but we don't wanna we don't actually have as much physical area as you know, if you look at, you know, Needham, which has a number of commu commuter rail stations that are kind of right in the middle of town. So that half mile radius captures everything in it is inside of Needham. Um, Newton's the same way. The Dean line and the commuter rail line are all squarely in the middle of town. Um, so there's no there's no issue with, you know, we've only got a certain amount of, of, of lands um, that we're, we're able to zone. So that has implications for the guidelines that the state put together. Um, the statute also enables the state's housing agency, which at the time was DHCD, the Department of Housing and Community Development. It's since been elevated to a cabinet level secretariat. So now it's the executive office of housing and livable communities. If I refer to HLC, um, that's what I'm referring to, the executive office of housing and livable communities. Um, they put together a, a sort of a, a number of guidelines for compliance, um, you know, for cities and towns, which was enabled by the statute. So um, I, I just previewed uh, this slide. <laughs> um, HLC guidelines for compliance um, really are there to give cities and towns a kind of a roadmap for what does reasonable size mean? You know, what does it mean if you're required to zone within a half a mile of transit, but like Milton, you don't have as much area within a half a mile of transit? Um, you know, what is no age restrictions mean you know what is what do all these things mean and so it, it's you know if the statute itself is maybe two or three paragraphs the guidelines are like 30 pages um you know and, and that's how that's how it tends to go with these sorts of regulations um so options for compliance the location of districts within a half a mile of transit is actually now determined by how much developable area exists in that half mile radius. And so just like we said, our developable area is reduced by the fact that the Mattapan trolley is on the Neponset River and the border with Boston. So we don't have the entire half a mile radius to, to work with. And so um, the guidelines set a calculation for if you've got X number of developable acres within a half a mile of transit, you have to put 100% of your district within a half a mile of transit. And then a sort of sliding scale downward where if it's a little bit less developable area, then you're at 90%, then 80%, 
the on that sliding scale where Milton falls is we are required to put only 50% of our zoning district within the half a mile of transit. And that's owing to the fact that, again, a significant portion of that radius is outside of town. So as a kind of, um, you know, a gesture of, you know, we want you to be able to do this and we want you to not have to necessarily put a tremendous amount of density in a small area, we have the flexibility to locate half of our zoning district basically anywhere else in town. Um, one thing now in, in, on this next bullet about sub-districts, and, and this is going to be something that's kind of important to keep in mind, we don't have to have one huge blobby district. Um, we can create multiple sub-districts in different areas of varying sizes in different sort of locations with different dimensional requirements. There's only a few restrictions on that. So you don't have to build, you don't have to create one big blobby district but half of your district has to be, you know, big and blobby <laughs> to, to continue the metaphor. Um, so at least half of the district needs to be contiguous. Um, and then each sub-district needs to be a minimum of five acres. So just as sort of by way of example, if we were going to do a 50-acre zoning district, 25 of those acres need to be contiguous in one kind of big portion. And then we could do up to five sub-districts because if it's 50 acres, 25 is contiguous, the other 25 can be in chunks of five acres or more. Um, so that, that has implications as we kind of move on. And you know, we're gonna be talking about sub-districts primarily. The requirement to create, you know, quote unquote, a zoning district is effectively you know, the sum total of all of the sub-districts. Um, so when you look at the maps that we're looking at and you look at the proposals that we're kind of playing around with, um, it, it doesn't really look like one zoning district, but it's kind of referred to as one zoning district. Um, but just kind of keep that in mind that we're dealing with these smaller sub-districts. Jim, can I ask a quick question before you move on from that slide? Go for it. Um, so the fact that 50% um, of the compliant zoning districts um, don't have to be within the half mile radius, is there, it can be literally anywhere else in town or does it just extend the radius further or are there any? It can be, it can be anywhere. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So in terms of dimensional requirements, um, you know, and, and this is kind of what zoning is. If you've ever had to, you know, if you've ever built a house or put an addition on or tried to locate a shed, um, you know, it's all about height, setbacks, density, lot coverage, these are kind of the bread and butter dimensional requirements of zoning. Um, those are up to us to, to decide, um, you know, what we're comfortable with. Um, you know, it all needs to add up to, um, you know, meeting all of the minimum requirements, but nothing in the, in the statute or the guidelines say, you know, you've got to allow 10-story buildings or you've got to allow zero lot line, you know, buildings, you know, we have a fair amount of flexibility in terms of what those dimensional requirements are. And in terms of the density, each individual subdistrict can have a different density, so long as the gross density of all of those subdistricts combined adds up to 15 units per acre. And so the very simple example that we use is, you know, if you have one subdistrict that comprises half of the total zoning district, that can have a density of five units per acre, um, which you know sounds like a lot, but it actually is really not not that much. There's 
huge swaths of town that are more dense than five units per acre. Um, so you could set that density as long as the other half has 25 units per acre. And so one half is five, the other half is, is 25. That adds up to a total overall gross density of 15 units per acre. That's very simplified. Um, but it's kind of the basic gist is as long as everything adds up to meet those minimum requirements, you can have different, you know, um, you know, different dimensions, different, um, densities kind of all over. Can I ask a so, question too again? I'm sorry. I don't yes, go for it. Do. But is, is there some way, how do they figure out who, which neighborhood takes the hit? Because if somebody gets to put five in one neighborhood or in one, in one sub area, then Who's taking that massive density in which neighborhood? And is that going to be an election or is that something people talk to? Like, I don't understand how the, how we're going to figure out or is it just what land is available where? Um, I've got some slides on that. <laughs> um, and, and, and I mean, the, the sort of the, 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 the ultimate answer to the question is town meeting decides, right? And, you know, town meeting, this is a zoning this is going to be a zoning law, just like any other zoning law. Um, you know, it's bigger than anything we've done since 1938, but it's the same principle of we're changing the bylaws. So town meeting needs to vote. Now, what eventually gets to town meeting um, is is part of the process that we're engaged in right now. And, um, you know, I, I do have some slides about kind of the thinking that we're kind of working through. But just to kind of let you know what the process has been, um, you know, there is a, and we'll we'll get to this in a little bit, but you know, there's a tool that the state has that the state is going to use to judge whether a district is compliant or not, um, and it's a it's a pretty sophisticated software model that you know takes the geographies that you're talking about in terms of where you want your districts to go, um, you input your dimensional requirements, and it kind of spits out you know are you meeting the overall density requirement, are you meeting the unit capacity requirement. You know, yes or no. And so we're able to test different scenarios where, you know, what if we did a district at 40 units per acre here and then a district of, you know, five units per acre here? You know, what would that look like? Would that get us to compliance? So a big part of the process has been just testing those scenarios to figure out, um, you know, what what kind of what does compliance actually look like for us? Um, we have been working with the planning board. Um, MBTA Communities is a standing item on the planning board every two weeks. We've had monthly public forums where, you know, we try to keep people updated on where we are in that sort of scenario testing process. We get feedback. We kind of hear what people's priorities are. One, a couple of things that I'll tell you that are kind of guiding our work in working with, you know, we've, we've gotten state grant money to work with technical assistance providers, you know, to do a lot of this planning. A couple of things that are guiding our thinking is, um, you know, people have talked about equity and fairness, for lack of a better term, where, you know, we have the flexibility to locate zoning districts out of the transit area. And so, you know, the very principle that you're talking about of, you know, who takes the hit um, you know, we're trying to spread this stuff around so that you don't have to do a super dense area in one part of town and then another part of town kind of gets nothing. Um, so there, that's a principle that we've heard in, in public meetings. I'm sorry to interrupt. What is there that? an option to, to do this without, I mean, I don't see that many undeveloped lots, right, along the, the train route. I live on Adams Street, so I can't picture other than Hutchinson failed, like that whole thing from the trolley. I mean, how... 
Well, I, I mean, a, a lot a lot of what we're talking about would have to be, you know, redevelopment of of existing of existing parcels. And you, when 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 you look in a couple slides, when you look at some of the areas that we're talking about, you know, you'll see some of these areas are, are probably not realistic for redevelopment for a lot of reasons, um, and and some of them are. Um, and and we'll we'll see that in a moment. Um, the the other principle that we have been trying to follow as closely as we can. And, and, you know, we know this from the master planning process. We know this from every zoning process we've ever done. Um, people, you know, prize the physical character of the town, the historic nature of the town. And so, you know, when we look at rezoning areas, what we're trying to do is minimize to the greatest extent possible the possibility of teardowns and give as many parcels as we can the opportunity or the possibility to be redeveloped in a you know a, a gentler way than than just sort of tearing down a building and putting up an apartment building, and and you'll you'll see in a little bit how that kind of manifests itself. Um, but yeah, you know the I other principle that we're following is when we try to identify areas that are potential targets for rezoning, is you know you could draw a, a five acre line around any part of town and say all right we're going to rezone this. Um, but that's kind of arbitrary. There's no planning principle behind that. It's kind of not fair. Um, what we're trying to look at is, you know, large parcels, um, non-residential parcels, either commercial. We don't have a ton of industrial, um, but places where, you know, the the possibility of, you know, demolishing or displacing existing residential fabric is is less um and and when we when we get to some of the districts that we're looking at you'll see that a little bit more closely tim could i ask a process um, question yeah go for it tim so process question who actually is going to draft the article and what are we going to get meaning like i can see where we might get you know, a couple of pages of black letter zoning law with a series of overlays or a series of maps that might be exhibits or something along those lines. So that's my question. Like, at some point, this is going to come to the Warren Committee as an article. Like, what are we going to get? Who drafts that? And, and, and what's it going to look like when it gets to us? So um, you're right. You're going to get language. Um, it's it's going to probably be um, a decent a decent chunk of language. Um, one thing that I can do, and I'll I'll make a note of this right now. Um, the state has drafted, um, you know, with the assistance of the the Mass Municipal Law Association and, and a number of other groups, they've drafted um, a model bylaw that they have made available to to, to cities and towns to use. Um, and, you know, we intend to kind of lean on that model. Um, so I can send that model bylaw along. Um, it obviously does not have any sort of Milton specific information in it yet, um, but it is the sort of basic framework for what we're going to be using um, to kind of, you know, populate that with the specific subdistricts that we're looking at, the specific dimensional requirements. Um, you know, one thing that you'll start to see later on in the presentation is that you know, using the the compliance model that the state has provided, that is doing a significant amount of the heavy lifting of figuring out, you know, where the districts are going to be, what the dimensional requirements within them are going to be, 
Um, it's not necessarily as easy as just sort of plug and play, but um, you know, we're going to use that model bylaw, you know, shape it to our own, you know, our own needs and our own circumstances. And that'll be what the warrant committee gets. That'll be what, you know, town meeting members get. And that'll what that's what it'll be, um, you know, at, at town meeting is, um, you know, zoning language. And then, you know, we will obviously have, you know, those, those visuals that show, um, you know, what the exact geography of these districts is going to be. So, um, to, to, to this slide, and this is where we start to get into some of the, the really, I think, important details of the, um, the compliance guidelines. Yeah, um, Tom would like to ask a question. Are you mic'd, Tom? I, I am. I believe I am. Okay. Uh, could you turn the microphone off? It, Can you hear me? No. See green. Is it, is it red light or is it green light? No light. I'll pass, Mr. Chair. Let, let Mr. The Planner continue. I can ask the question later. Okay. It's okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tim, we're good. You can continue, please. Thank you. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I, I couldn't hear yeah, that. I yeah. apologize. Yep, it were. Yep. So, one thing that the guidelines that HLC has created. Um, is, is they categorize communities according to the level of their MBTA service. Um, so if you, if you go strictly by the law, um, every kind of city and town is, is kind of the same. You know, Milton is the same as Ashby, is the same as Whitman, is the same as Cambridge. Um, and I, I think HLC, as they were looking at that, started to think, you know, these are towns with different sets of circumstances. Um, you know, if you've got commuter rail service, it's a lot different than if you've got red line service. And, you know, there are a lot of communities that are referred to as adjacent communities that actually don't even have an MBTA station, but they're close enough to a town with an MBTA station that they have a fraction of developable area in their town. And so what HLC has done is they've sort of created these, these levels of service. So, you know, rapid transit is the highest level of service. Then you have commuter rail, um, and then you've got these what they call adjacent communities, which don't have service themselves, but are close enough to service that they're going to be required to do some type of rezoning. So, um, you know, the Mattapan trolley is considered to be an extension of the red line. Milton is a rapid transit community as a result under the guidelines. And so we sort of have, you know, the highest obligation among um, the 175 MBTA communities. There are 12 rapid transit communities. If you look at sort of the MBTA sort of red, blue, green, and orange line map, you can see what, what those towns are. And so under the guidelines, the obligations that we have is one, a deadline for compliance of December 31, 2023. Um, this is why we're having um, a special town meeting in December to sort of meet that December 31st guideline uh, deadline. And then we have what's called, um, you know, a unit capacity that we're required to um, to kind of to, to zone for, and that is tied to the statute's requirement that a zoning district be of, you know, quote unquote, a reasonable size. Yeah. And so the the way that the way that HLC sort of defines reasonable size is physically at least 50 acres, and then in terms of what is inside those 50 acres depending on your level of MBTA service, you've got to zone for a percentage of your existing year-round housing stock. So um, we've got a zone for 2,461 units. That's 
of the existing year-round housing stock. So we're going to use the term called unit capacity. That's what that is. You know, that 2461 number becomes really important. Um, and that's kind of the number that we're chasing as we do, um, you know, testing of different scenarios. Tim? Was there a question? I heard some yeah. folks talking. I have a question on the difference between the law and the guidelines. Because guidelines typically aren't enforceable by law. They're a guideline. So the law empowers the um, state housing agency to create guidelines for towns to understand how they can comply. The way that the process will work is, um, you know, cities and towns will create new zoning districts um, according to the compliance guidelines. They will submit that zoning to the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities, and they will, um, you know, look and see if that zoning adheres to the compliance guidelines. And they'll either say, yes, this is compliant, you're good to go, no penalties, or they'll say, this isn't compliant for these reasons. You know, you've got to go back and and fix these deficiencies. Um, so, you know, they are guidelines, but also the, the there's no one else that's going to judge these zoning districts except for HLC, and there's no other criteria that they're going to judge it by except for the compliance guidelines. So, it's really the only roadmap we have for how do we get to compliance is is the guidelines that HLC has created. Yeah, but wouldn't it just be 15 units an acre and what compliance? You just pick a couple of spots like that. And yeah, but how? But, but but how do you know how big of a district to make? You make it as small as you can. It's reasonable, and I think that's what needs to be defined, and that's what the HLC's guidelines would read life into. I get it, but I. Live I, I mean, the, you know, the, the state the state has told us what they believe a reasonable size to be, and if we're below that, then we're not compliant. And, you know, th that it's just sort of if, if the town wants to dispute that, you know, the only venue for that then is is court. So um, so there's, court, there's, there's, there's really only one path, you know, outside of, you know, some sort of a lawsuit. We can bring it up on our discussion. No, just think we should wait until Rockport gets it. It's not. That's all. Why would we have something that might not have to be? Do we have so question, Tim? With regards, I, I couldn't help but notice in the Facebook, there was a, a, a post to the town of Milton that the select board has sent a letter to the MBTA board of directors seeking information regarding classification as Mattapan trolley as rapid transit. Um, what, what does that mean? What, is, what would the effect of reclassification be? So this is kind of a little bit of a bank shot um, on, on the part of the town. So the, the, the guidelines create these tranches of, of towns. Um, there are 12 rapid transit towns, you know, Cambridge, Somerville, Quincy, Braintree, Chelsea, Everett, uh, Medford, Somerville, Newton, Brookline, um, Revere, um, Lynn. These are all cities and towns that have, you know, an MBTA color stop in them. And so the guidelines say these are the towns that we believe have the best service and have the highest obligation to provide additional housing. Um, you know, because again, there are towns, you know, way out in Worcester County that are MBTA communities. And, you know, it, it would be nice if, you know, 
Hamilton or, or, or some other town, you know, and, you know, Fitchburg, you know, if they produced a ton of housing, but ultimately, you know, the Commonwealth needs housing to be closest to the inner core. Um, and so that's why those communities have the highest obligation. So there is a sentiment um, among some in town that, you know, based on the condition of the trolley cars, based on the condition of the uh, of the stations, based on the fact that, um, you know, we, we refer to sort of one or two or three seat rides to downtown. You know, imagine if you got on the red line at Quincy Center, you know, you could get to Park Street, Downtown Crossing, South Station, Kendall Square. You know, you sit down once and, and you're downtown. That's a one seat ride to downtown. Um, the Mattapan trolley represents, you know, at the very least, a two seat ride um, because you get on the trolley, you have to get off at Ashmont, get on a new train. And, you know, there are some folks that say, we don't consider this to be rapid transit. The service isn't good enough. Um, we shouldn't have as high an obligation as Cambridge, um, for instance, which has, you know, real red line service, you know, right to downtown. Um, and so we were asked by, and by we, I mean the town administrator and myself, were asked by, you know, both the planning board and the select board to inquire with um, HLC what what was your reasoning behind these classifications? Um, you know, and, and some of them are obvious. You know, again, Cambridge is obviously a rapid transit community. Um, you know, Somerville is obviously a rapid transit community. Um, you know, there are some edge cases, Milton being, I kind of I think the most obvious edge case. What were the criteria that you used to determine these these classifications? And the answer we got back from HLC was kind of basically, you know, this is what the T thinks, you know, they consider these towns to have rapid transit service. And, you know, we're the housing agency. Who are we to second guess the transit agency? And so, um, you know, based on that, the question now becomes, OK, what does the T do in terms of classifying things according to rapid transit, commuter rail, bus, you know, et cetera? And so, um, you know, we have had some conversations with sort of other you know, not, not necessarily, um, you know, directly related, you know, folks at the T, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you classify these things? We've been pointed towards the service delivery policy, the fare policy, all of these things basically say, you know, the Mattapan trolley is an extension of the red line. It's considered to be rapid transit. Um, and so that letter to the board of directors of the MBTA is basically the select board asking, you know, you need to explain this a little bit more to us um, about, you know, why this service that we have is considered to be rapid transit, because it doesn't look like all of the other rapid transit services. And so that's basically what that letter was, was sort of, you know, a, a, a request for more information and a kind of, you know, an assertion that, you know, look, you've been doing this Mattapan transformation project for many years. You know, when is this actually going to happen? In the meantime, all of these other lines have gotten new cars, have gotten new stations. The Mattapan trolley has been neglected. I mean, the stairs at Milton Station are a great example. And so um, I think that the, um, you know, the, the outcome that I think you know, some folks, you know, and, and, you know, I don't want to speak for the select board or the planning board or, or, or anyone that's spoken at my public meetings, you know, but I think the, the, the expectation would be that, you know, the T would look at these arguments and say, okay, you know, maybe this isn't rapid transit. And then we would go to HLC and say, look, the T said, we're not rapid transit. You know, we shouldn't have the same obligations as these other towns. Um, so it's, numbers? there's no blueprint for any of this. <laughs> um, so it really is something that 
Um, you know, I, I don't want to say shot in the dark, but I think it is something that there's really no precedent. Um, and so like we're asking, you know, we're, we're making the best arguments we can. And we're, you know, I think a really sincere and earnest kind of exploration of, of how the T kind of operates and, and what they do in terms of classifying these things. But, um, you know, there is no procedure for reclassification. So, I mean, it's something that we're kind of pursuing and, you know, we'll see what happens. In the meantime, we've got to kind of continue on the road that we're on, you know, towards compliance. Tim, is it true that Boston's exempt? So it's true that Boston is exempt in the sense that um, Section 3A is an amendment to Chapter 40A, which is the Zoning Enabling Act for 350 of the 351 cities and towns in the Commonwealth. City of Boston has its own um, Zoning Enabling Act. It's Chapter 653 of the Acts of 1956. Um, you know, very similar to 40A, but um, if you amend 40A and don't amend Boston's Zoning Enabling Act, then that means that 3A doesn't apply to the city of Boston. Okay, one other question. Do you have ridership for the trolley based on station? Um, we have that data. I don't have it at my fingertips, but that's something that I can also um, pass along. We've gotten that from so uh, for the from most the of the ridership. The is it true that most of it begins at Ashmont and or Mattapan, and there's really nothing in between except for maybe Central? Yeah, I, 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 it's, I, it's probably true that a significant portion of the ridership on the Mattapan line starts in in Ashmont or or Mattapan Square. So typically, the people from Milton don't use the trolley. Yeah, but but I think one thing that you've got to understand about transit ridership is that the land use determines the ridership. Um, you know, we have we have statistics. You know, there's like eleven boardings at Capen Street. You know, on on a typical day. You know, that the T observed, which which is barely anything. Um, you know, but if you look at the land use around Capen Street compared to Ashmont or you know Symphony Station or something, you know, it's 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 you know comparatively barely anyone lives there. So I think the whole point of the MBTA communities law is we've got transit service. Conceivably, there is capacity on the Mattapan line, um, you know, especially in Milton, where, where people tend not to be riding it. You know, we need to adjust land use regulations to enable more people to live on transit, to take advantage of these fixed assets that we already have, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, expanding service, you know, somewhere else. Um, so it's about kind of filling in those stations where there's not a ton of ridership. Um, you know, with people who would conceivably take the train rather than kind of driving their cars. Are they guaranteeing if we do the zoning, they're going to give us new rolling stock that can handle more than 50 people a car? We only have four cars that operate right now. So the Mattapan Transformation Project um, currently has a budget of, it's between 100 and $120 million. That is enough to get them to a 15% um, a design on new tracks and new stations. Um, so that's, you know, it, it's not it's not the end of the project, um, but it is, a, a, you know, a much more concrete um, end mark than we've ever had for this project. So it really then depends on, you know, future capital budgets at the state level, future allocations from the transportation improvement plan. But, you know, but the plan is, you know, the whole reason they're doing this is to, uh, you know, put in new tracks and make station adjustments so that rather than using the sort of the old PCC cars, which are, you know, among the only PCC cars left in regular circulation, 
that the tracks and the stations would be able to handle the same type of they use on the green line so that, um, you know, as you know, as the green line cars get replaced by newer vehicles, those vehicles can then go to Mattapan or, you know, they could conceivably procure, you know, the Mattapan line's own kind of, um, you know, new vehicles. But, you know, currently you can't do that. They don't make the PCC cars anymore. So we're kind of stuck in a cycle of refurbishment and fixing and just trying to, like, keep these things online. So, you know, there's no guarantee but that project is more real than it's ever been at this point. Um, and so, you know, that becomes, you know, a, a matter for, you know, continued lobbying on the town's part, you know, via our elected delegation, via the select board, via anyone that, you know, has has the ability to, to speak up about it. So in theory, we could pass all this and never have the capacity. Because I, I mean, I, I think it's important to understand that, you know, trains and they haven't. There, there's 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 capacity today. There isn't. Um, there's four cars. What was that? 50 people. There's not capacity that they said. There's four four cars that they run one at a time that haul 50 people. That yeah, but they, but they run they, they, they run they run 10 of those cars an hour. So, you know, there's the potential to, to be picking up 500 people in an hour in one of those vehicles. When they're not running buses. So, I, I, I mean, it's it's empirical. They run they run six minute headways, you know, in the peak hour. Um, you know, this it's I, I, I understand that, you know, the, the cars are not in great shape and they're small and there's only one of them. Um, and that, you know, we don't have a lead pipe insur- assurance that, you know, the transformation project is actually going to get built. That's all but I want to hear. The, 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 the view, the view of the legislature in kind of passing this law is that, you um, if you wait for transit service to build housing, you'll never build the housing. The housing needs to come first and the transit service follows. That's so there is there is capacity on the Mattapan line. Thank you. And the thinking is that the more housing you put on the line, the more incentive there is to improve that service. Thank you. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on to the next slide. So, so just a very quick. I have a question before you move on. Sorry, I had to hit on you. Um, so, are you saying that we, our town council, has um, not pursued reclassification? I mean, it would be the select board that would would do anything on behalf of the town, and and, and at this point, they have sent a letter to the MBTA, kind of requesting um, you information. Know, yeah. Okay, but so have they, so the other part of it is, have they talked to town council though, like, and been advised to to be able to provide a legal letter um, from our town council to say, ask for reclassification before we move forward in, you know, this whole process? Like, because, you know, that's just um, what I was thinking, have they done that yet? Well, I mean, it's not a legal question. It's 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 more of a kind of a policy question and, and quite frankly, a political question, um, you know, because there is no as far as I know, there is no procedure for reclassification. There's no law or, or kind of regulation that you can invoke. It would be, you know, what is the T's internal policy towards categorization of their own service and kind of, you know, asking them or compelling them to rethink it. So, um, you know, the letter from the select board 
you know, is 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 going to be the thing. Um, and, and whether they choose to kind of ramp up the pressure on that yeah. based on the response that they get from the T, you know, again, is, is, is a question for the select board. OK, well, I just have one other. Um, has there been um, a, a study of the number of passengers on the trolley so that we could, um, you know, so, and how much money that is being taken yeah, from the amount of people that are going on the trolley? Um, so we have ridership numbers. Um, the T does periodic um, observations of, of ridership. The um, the Mattapan trolley is a little bit trickier than other lines. Um, you you know if you go to Ashmont and you know try to find out how many people are getting on the train you know downtown at Ashmont, you just you know crack open the fare gate and and all of that information is there because people are tapping their trolley cards. Um, because the Mattapan line is a little bit more uh, loose in terms of fare collection. Um, what they've got to do is kind of actually go out and have like direct observations of sort of counting people getting on and off um, the train. And so it, it's not as real time as certain data, but we do have recent data from spring of 2023 um, of, of how many people are getting on and off those trains. Um, I, I can share that with the WAR committee um, tomorrow when I get back to my desk. Um, now, is that broken down by um, the location where they enter the trolley? Yes. Okay, because I've how how are they doing? Is it just by the trolley director, the person that's because it's not you don't use a trolley card, right? So so what 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 I'm saying is when 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 the MBTA wants to calculate, yeah, how many people are, are getting on and off, they'll send a person out and you know to each of the stations and kind of observe how many people are getting on at each station, how many people are getting off. Um, I, I don't know the exact methodology, but it involves direct observation at a certain time. And so they'll go out during the peak commuting time, you know, when you've got the greatest ridership and they'll go out and physically count people as opposed to, you know, again, you know, you, people walk on and off the trolley without kind of tapping their cards all the time. Um, and so, you know, that's not a reliable way to count. They've got to actually kind of physically be counting people. Okay, so you'll be sending how many so we can see? Because and how much does Milton pay the MBTA like to for the service? Do you know that? I, I'd have to, I'd have to double check on that. We talked about this the other night at the planning board. I think someone yeah. threw around the number of like two million dollars as our assessment. Um, okay. And and that's and that's a formula in in statute yeah. kind of based on population. So, sure. Um, I will find out. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all your information and your work. For sure. Um, we're only on slide eight, gang, so there's plenty, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of information to come. Um, Sorry about that. I'll, no, no, no. No worries. That's why I'm here. Tim, um, can I just clarify, though, from something you said earlier, <clears throat> usage is irrelevant in all of this. Right. So, you know, it, it's... It's undeniable that the Mattapan trolley is not as well used in the town of Milton as it is in Mattapan or Dorchester or or other lines, you know, compared to compared to other lines. But it's kind of that observation kind of makes the state's argument for it um, that you know there is service that is running whether people get on it or not, and sort of the the goal is to sort of use land use regulation to increase the number of people that are using transit, um, you know, as opposed to being kind of in housing that's further afield from the inner core and kind of driving their cars. Um, but I do so. want to point out, like, usage would, is, would determine a classification because somebody getting a, a, a train system that's 
coming from Ashman is different with the amount of usage and they're able versus a trolley system that has 10 people, you know, so that's, for me, it's more of the classification. Well, so the conversations that I've had with, with people in, in sort of the policy um, department at, at the T have kind of told me, and, and, and this is kind of, you know, in their service policy, it's in their fair policy, is what they think about when they think about rapid transit is, you know, what is the infrastructure? Is it a bus that's on the road and is kind of subject to traffic and stoplights and all of that? Or is it a, is it a sort of, um, you know, a fixed asset, train tracks, exclusive right away? No one can go on the train tracks except for the train. Um, and then what is the frequency of the service? So, you know, both the, you know, the Stoughton line on the commuter rail and the Mattapan trolley both operate on train tracks, but the Stoughton train comes every half hour in the peak commuting time and the Mattapan trolley comes every six minutes. So those two factors are two of the biggest factors that they consider when they classify things as rapid transit. And so, you know, that becomes, you know, the question of, you know, if the Mattapan trolley is not rapid transit, what is, it? Um, you know, we would be asking the T to kind of create, you know, a third thing basically to classify the Mattapan trolley. And so that's why getting that clarity, you know, and kind of identifying like, look, you know, we understand what your definitions are, but you have to understand on the ground the trains are not in good shape. The stations are not in good shape. Um, you know, if there's a snowstorm, they can't get through the snow and we have to, you know, get on a bus diverted. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, they have a definition and they have a, a, a set of criteria. And I think what the select board's letter is kind of starting to try to articulate is there are additional um, criteria that maybe you should be thinking about. So we, we, we were talking about unit capacity. So the zoning has to have the potential to create 2,461 units. And so what unit capacity is, is very simply the number of units that could be built under a certain zoning scheme. So today, the vast majority of land in town is zoned for single family houses. So if you are in an A zone and you have 40,000 square feet of land, the unit capacity of your property under our zoning is one. You can build one house on that acre of land. Um, if you're in an A zone and you have 20,000 square feet of land, your zone capacity is zero because the minimum lot size is 40,000 square feet. You don't have enough. You know, you don't, you, you have a zone capacity of zero. If you're in a C zone and you have a 40,000 square foot lot, your zone capacity is whatever 40,000 divided by 7,500 square feet is. Um, 7,500 square feet is the is the minimum lot size in the C zone. So you could subdivide into multiple lots if you've got a big enough lot. And so your zone capacity is greater than one. Um, you know, the, the diagram here kind of talks about duplexes. A duplex is just a one building with two units in it. So, you know, pretend that we've got a two-family house in the town of Milton. When you're calculating the unit capacity of a parcel, you have to just pretend that there's nothing there, right? This is just an undeveloped parcel, whether it has a single family house or a two family house or an apartment tower on it, pretend it's blank. And then you have to think, okay, under a new zoning scheme, how many units could be built on this blank parcel? So, um, you know, this becomes important because, you know, people ask, well, can we get credit for, you know, existing multifamily or how many, you know, 
you know, net new units are we going to get, you know, depending on where we go. And so it's important to understand that the, the, the zoning is kind of agnostic on what's actually there right now and is only concerned with how much could you potentially build under the new zoning. And, and the other thing that's, you know, extraordinarily important to remember is that MBTA community section 3A is a zoning mandate. It's not a production mandate. So if we create compliant zoning and then a single new unit is not produced ever, we're still compliant. Um, if they say that, you know, we've checked all our boxes and we've created compliant zoning, it doesn't matter if anything actually gets produced. Now, the likelihood of that happening is, is pretty slim. You know, something will get produced, but there is no, no one is compelling the town to do anything besides create the zoning in order to encourage new housing to be built. And I, I say it's really important to remember this because a lot of times I'll, I'll be at a public forum and people will be like, well, what happens if no one builds anything? Then we're going to do eminent domain and we're going to take people's land and build apartments on it. We're not going to do that. There's no... There's nothing requiring the town to do anything besides pass the zoning and then let individual property owners decide whether they want to redevelop or not redevelop. Um, you know, the town will sort of be out of it at that point once the zoning is, is created. Obviously, we've got to issue building permits and do site plan approval, but, um, you know, that's, um, that's kind of standard stuff. And, and, and that's another thing to kind of keep in mind is we're required to create by right zoning, um, but there, there are other things that we're still allowed to do. So, um, you know, if you follow the planning board at all, the planning board has a process called site plan review. And what site plan review is basically meant for is projects and proposals that are allowed by zoning, but are kind of, you know, more complex or just different than a single family house. And so our requirements are basically any multifamily project is subject to site plan review and any commercial project is subject to site plan review. And that's basically giving the planning board an opportunity to kind of evaluate the physical impacts of a project that maybe again is, you know, the building code, you know, can handle single family houses. But once you get bigger than that, you need a little bit more of a closer review, um, you know, a, a more kind of detailed request for information on the part of developers. So we're allowed to do that. Um, you know, we're also allowed to require 10% affordability. Um, a lot of folks are concerned about affordable housing. We are allowed to include a 10% requirement of what they call inclusionary zoning. Um, the state is capped at 10%. They don't want to see towns requiring 20, 25, 30% because that renders projects financially unfeasible and kind of undercuts the, the sort of the purpose of the law. So they've kind of set that level like sort of 10% Keep up with 40B if you're if you're if you're already there. You know maybe you can grab a few units, um, but you know we're allowed to do that and and still be considered compliant. So that's another important thing to keep in mind. Kim, can these 40Bs so, be put under the zoning? What was that? Can it, all the new 40Bs that are out there can they be thrown into the MBTA zoning? So what you would need to do is and and we're actually looking at this on on Randolph Ave is you would have to, um, it, so the answer is it depends. Um, because you have to, if, if you were to create a sub-district that includes one of the 40B projects, it's gotta be at least five acres, right? And um, 
So you'd have to look at, at each of those projects and say, okay, are, you know, is, does this add up to five acres? I don't have the data on, on, on my fingertips. A couple of them are on pretty big parcels, but I don't know if any of them are five acres on their own. So you would need to create a bigger district. The other thing that you would need to make sure that you do is don't create zoning that is more attractive than the 40B project itself, right? So if you've got a 40B project that, you know, is already at, you know, 20 units per acre, um, because we are zoning multiple sub-districts and need to get to a overall density of 15 units per acre, some of the sub-districts we're looking at need to be much bigger than 15 units per acre to account for sub-districts that are smaller than 15 units per acre. And so, you know, it's not as simple as just sort of drawing a line around a 40B project and calling it a day, because if you, if you do zoning that is, you know, more permissive than the 40B project itself, then you, what you have the potential for is they throw away the 40B project and then come in and get a building permit for a much bigger project under your buy right zoning. And so it's, it's a very kind of careful calibration that you need to do. But we are actually looking at the, the 728 Randolph Ave parcel and seeing if we can kind of create a zoning district around that. Because, and, and this is another important thing to keep in mind, and, and you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this when we look at the maps, but I'll give you a great example. 88 Wharf is 73 units or 78. It's, let's say it's 70, 78 units. Um, that's a relatively new building. Um, it's owned by a condo association. Each of the individual unit owners owns, you know, their portion of the building. Um, that was created via special permit. Um, that building is currently, I think the density is something like 35 units per acre. Um, it's 78 units on a little bit more than two acres. So we're going to draw a zoning subdistrict that includes 88 wharf. And that zoning will be for maybe, let's say, 40 units per acre. So 88 wharf will have new zoning underneath it. Um, we will get credit for however many units of unit capacity for that zoning. And the probability of a new development happening at 88 Wharf is, is infinitesimal. Um, you know, again, it's a relatively new building. It's in great shape. It's a lovely building. Um, the idea that the condo association would decide to demolish their own building and chase a slight increase in density is, is comical. Right. So there are there are opportunities for us to effectively, you know, take credit for stuff that we've already done. Um, and, and that's kind of how it's done. And we'll show that a little bit more detail when we look at the maps. But um, I, I want to just kind of get through um, a, a little bit of this because we're going to get into the really ex exciting stuff. But, you know, these are the variables that we need to satisfy, you know, at least 50 acres, zone capacity of 2461 units overall density of 15 units per acre. Tim, so on 40B, like, so this 2461, it's fair to assume that none of them are going to be affordable, right? And so this is going to create a need for us to create more 40B to, to um, accommodate that. Have you crunched any numbers? Like if we do the maximum 2461 units, do you have an idea of how many additional 40B units Milton would be required to build against that? 
So I, I don't think it's necessarily accurate to say that none of them will be affordable because if we if if we go to the limit of what we're allowed to do in the zoning, we can require at least 10% of any of these units to be affordable, right? So there are implications for that. So if you want to, and, and we'll see this in All a right, little so bit. So let's just go to, let's, fine, let's go to like 2200. If we have to go to 2200, like how many 40Bs would we have to put online against like say 2200? So I, I, we haven't done the math on that, but, but the other thing to keep in mind is that, again, the 2461 is a zoning mandate. There, I, it, is, there, I, it is a guarantee, a 100% guarantee that we will not see 2461 units be built under this zoning ever. Um, because you have to understand that we are going to be zoning many, many different properties that have very different likelihoods of redevelopment, either based on their location or based on their ownership or based on their current condition or, you know, depending on where we zone, you know, if we're zoning along Elliott Street, you know, for instance, which is, you know, a potential possibility, then you're talking about hundreds of potential property owners making hundreds of different um, you know, redevelopment decisions. The, the, the thing that I like to tell people is, you know, if you go back and read, you know, newspaper accounts of our 1938 zoning, you'll see them talk about creating zoning in Milton, which largely still exists today, that would have a zone capacity for 50 to 70,000 Miltonians, right? That's our, that's our full build out under our current zoning, um, which we haven't even come close to. So, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why you know, there's a target number of 2461, but the likelihood of actually those units coming online and the pace of them coming online is is kind of unknown. So, you know, you could do that math and kind of figure that out. Um, but ultimately, the timeline that we're talking about is, you know, it's it, it's undeniable. You know, we're going to have to create more, you know, SHI eligible units, but we have to do that anyway. Um, and so, you know, the level at which that happens, I think we're going to avail ourselves of, of the 10% inclusionary requirement so that we can at least keep our heads above water. Um, but you're, you can never inclusionary zone your way out of 40B. You've got to allow 40B projects to be built. Um, so, you know, we can we can try to estimate that. But, you know, the, the timeline under which that happens is kind of, you know, really tough to tell. Tim, what's the ratio to put affordable housing on to new stock? So we put, say we put 15 new houses in the town. How many? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear any of that. If we say someone comes in and builds 20 units in the neighborhood of new housing, how many affordable housing units for 40B do we have to have per that 20? Is there, there has to be a ratio somewhere. Well, so, I mean, if it's created under the zoning and, and we decide to do 10%, so two of those units in that project would be affordable units. But um how, you know how many additional now, 40 what was that with our current zoning laws per new housing unit what's the percentage of affordable housing that has to be built as we stand today that's a complicated question so you know the the other really important thing to understand is that under under our current zoning which by and large only allows single family houses um we're not building any affordable housing. 
the only the only thing the only way that we're getting affordable housing is 40b projects yeah but and, if you know we're ticks that number up what's the multiplier for new construction to 40b units there has to be a metric somewhere that isn't a, a huge problem it's per 20 units it's 0.8 affordable housing units I, I i'd have to go back and do that math um so I, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm sorry. Okay. Tim, do you know if anybody is, um, has, has fought this, has taken, this was the last governor who put this in on his way out, right? And then fled. Is, has any other communities come in and just said this is not? Is any, is well, it's, it's, it's the state legislature that passed the law. Okay. So has, is anybody um, fighting this? So, so yeah. far, um, and, and it's, it's, it's tough to say because you know, each of these different types of communities have different deadlines. Mm -hmm. The rapid transit communities have the earliest deadline for compliance, which is December 31st, 2023. Yep. You know, that's a date where we'll see, you have know, you if any of those 12 communities are, are in compliance or not. Um, a lot of towns are, you know, playing ball. Um, I know the town of Holden has famously kind of, you know, explicitly said, we're just not doing it. Um, they've already been sued by a civil rights group on fair housing grounds. Um, so they're the highest profile one so far. I think no other town, I mean, Middleborough was kind of talking for a little bit. Marshfield was talking for a little bit, but I think everyone by and large is kind of, you know, if, if they harbor really strong feelings about not complying, they're not talking about it much publicly. So, um, you know, the rubber's going to hit the road at those compliance deadlines, you know, the first of which is December 31, 2023. Tim, I'm sorry, but can we, is there an opportunity to file an extension for that deadline or is that set in stone? Do we know? Um, we, we could, we could ask, um, but, but, but I think the question becomes, what do you, what do you need the, what do, what do you need the extension for? Um, like you know, how much time do you think that you need? These things tend to go away. You know what I mean? Like when a lot of people are traveling, you have June, July, August, people are out of school, kids are out of school, people are traveling. It's, you know, you lose some time. That's my only concern. I would think the extension. I mean, you know, my, my, my director from the select board, um, you know, I work for the select board is, um, you know, to, to pursue compliance, you know, by the deadline. Um, but ultimately town meeting is the decision maker. Um, so if for whatever reason the zoning is not satisfactory to town meeting for, you know, either, you know, fundamental ideological reasons or because, you know, they think it needs more work or needs to be adjusted, you know, that'll be that, that'll be the, the, the decision maker, you know, in December, you know, whether or not town meeting decides that they want to pass the zoning or not, um, you know, in which case, you know, it's not necessarily an extension, but you know, we will have to go back to the drawing board, you know, with, you know, that input and that data from uh, from town meeting if they decide not to vote for it. But, you know, as of right now, you know, my directive has been to, you know, pursue compliance and, you know, help the planning board, help the select board, help the town kind of figure this stuff out. Thank you. And Tim, you you submitted an action plan in, in, in or around January. Is that is yes. that true? So like we're yes. so this is underway. This is happening. Like we are we are on track for compliance. Yeah, it's it's going to be hard work, but um, you know the it the, is the a lot. Plan, and we, we want to recognize that we do recognize that you have put in a tremendous amount of work on this. It's phenomenal. No, and 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 I think ultimately, you know, my 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 kind of position here is, 
you know, I, I want to I want to get the stuff in front of people and, and you know, not talk about the kind of meta ancillary stuff. But let's talk about the zoning um, and, and, and kind of figure out if it works or it doesn't work. And, and ultimately, the way that the law works is just like any other zoning law. Um, and if town meeting doesn't want to do it, town meeting is not going to do it. Um, and so I, I think, you know, getting it in front of town meeting becomes really important. Um, so it, the next couple slides show some of the districts that we've been testing. Um, I, I mentioned that the state has produced this software model that allows you to sort of input, um, you know, geographic information system data about geographies that you want to test and it allows you to put in zoning parameters and it'll tell you, do you hit your compliance metrics or not? So the first set of, of districts or sub-districts, I should say, that we're looking at are, are what we call kind of the large parcels. Um, and I mentioned earlier, one of the fundamental things that we're kind of are, are guiding us is non-residential parcels or parcels that already have multifamily on them or are large or commercial or undeveloped. And so um, you've got this sort of crudely drawn <laughs> diagram here um, that shows, you know, we're looking at the large parcels in Milton Village and Central Ave. We're looking at Unquity House, um, which is the large multifamily building um, across the river from Mattapan Square, Brush Hill Road, Neponsa Valley Parkway, Fuller Village, and the Brush Hill Rehabilitation Center. Um, these are large parcels that have either existing multifamily or, um, or, or sort of non-residential uses. Um, Randolph Ave, the A. Thomas and Sons property, and the Animal Rescue League property that's kind of behind those. Um, again, represent large non-residential parcels. And then um, on Granite Ave, this, this sub-district is a little bigger than it actually is because it includes some marshland that um, we're no longer including in the zoning district for reasons that I can explain, but don't worry about it. Um, but this district would include two Granite Ave, the Flatley office building, um, the state DPW yard kind of park and ride lot, and then the, um, the American Legion Hall, which again, large parcels, non-residential, um, you know, places where you can build kind of credible multifamily buildings. And so what we've done is identified these geographies and then put in some really basic zoning parameters and see, does this get us to compliance or not? Was there a question? Yes. Yeah, is, is the old paper mill site taken off of that? Because I believe that's seven acres, isn't it? So that's actually less than seven acres. I think the paper mill site is something like four acres. Um, and the problem size. with that, oops, it doesn't be five acres. It has to be a reasonable size. So why aren't we using it? Because it's not five acres. It says of reasonable size or five acres. There's two different parameters mm -hmm. there. One says the law says reasonable size, and then the guidance says five acres. There's two different things. So if, if 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 we if we submitted that as a subdistrict. HLC would look at the size of the subdistrict and say, this isn't five acres, this is not a compliant subdistrict. But it's not the law, that's guidance. The, the, the law empowers the housing agency to create guidelines to judge compliance. I'd rather challenge that. That's down the road. There's, I, 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 if, we, if, we were to, if we were to pursue that, you know, I don't I don't know what the recourse is when HLC says it's not compliant. I mean, the recourse would typically be you go back and you draw a compliant district. But if, if we're going to insist that we want to use that, 
then, you know, again, I don't know, I don't know where that ends us up at, except in court against the state. Um, you know, so, you know, again, it's kind of, it's, it speaks towards, you know, trying to follow the compliance guidelines so that you don't end up in that position. I get that, but can the question be asked, can this be used because we're starved for land as it is? And every rule has an exception. I... I, I, I think you know we're 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 tr we're trying to look at areas where we 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 fit the guidelines without having to to ask for exceptions um, because again I think I think the I think the state is going to be very stingy when it comes to relief from these guidelines because because again you have to understand there are twelve cities and towns with deadlines this December and then there's another hundred and sixty three after that. So, and so, you know, this this first set of of towns coming in is really kind of precedent setting for the state. And so, um, you know, my, my instinct here is that, you know, they're going to want people to follow the guidelines as closely as possible. So a lot of this is done by assumption. We don't have any real rule. With the, I, 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 I can't I can't say this more than I've said it. Um, the, the state law empowers the housing agency to create guidelines. The state housing agency is the, the people who are going to judge our zoning for compliance or not. And so we're following the guidelines. And I haven't gotten a directive from, from anybody to, to do otherwise. Okay. Thank you. So just to, um, I'll try to run through this really quick because, you know, it, it's a little bit of a fluid situation as we start to, you know, we'll do these tests, we'll get the results, and then we'll see you know, the unit capacity is really high or it's really low. And, you know, we'll start to make, um, you know, adjustments based on that. But this is kind of what this stuff looks like. Um, you know, the inputs are, you know, what is your minimum lot size in your zoning? Um, how many parking spaces per dwelling unit? What is your building height? What is your lot coverage? Um, so these are the things you're punching into the model. And and in, in kind of the real world, what you're basically saying is, you know, I'll give, you know, Milton Hill House as an example over here at at 36 Elliott Street, you know, the, here's a parcel that has a sort of aging apartment building on it, really big parking lot, um, you know, at a density of 40 units per acre for that, you know, approximately, you know, several, you know, I, I think it might be a two or two and a half acre site, you know, how many units can go on there under these zoning parameters? And so this is what the, you know, the, the model spits out. And, you know, a couple of the numbers that become important there are the multifamily unit capacity number. So we would get 597 units out of this zoning district if we did it, you know, under these parameters at a dwelling units per acre of, of almost 75 dwelling units per acre, um, which is really good. If you have 75 units per acre in an area where you think you can handle it, that allows you to do a lower density elsewhere. And the reason why I say that is because we set the dwelling units per acre at 40 units per acre. And that mirrors 131 Elliott Street, the Hendry's project, which is on one acre of land and it's got 38 units in it. Um, so that was a special permit project. That was something that the town, you know, felt, all right, we can we can tolerate that in this area. Um, you know, it's not fully sold out yet, but it's up, it's there. Um, we're going to start to kind of see how that, you know, exists, you know, in the neighborhood. But, you know, we sort of mirrored that for all of the other parcels. Um, and so under those parameters, we get a unit capacity of 597. Now, are 597 units going to be built here? Absolutely not. 
you've got 88 Wharf Street, not going to be redeveloped. 131 Elliott Street is a brand new building, not going to be redeveloped. 36 Central, brand new building, not going to be redeveloped. 50 Elliott Street, brand new building, not going to be redeveloped. So, you know, this is when we say, you know, taking credit for what we've already done. We don't have a ton of multifamily in town, but we're trying to, you know, get credit for it in the sense of we will get a unit capacity number out of those parcels, but we won't have the impact of new units. We'll just have the units that we already have. Um, so I'm going to try to blow through these pretty quickly just to kind of show you the geographies um, and, and kind of what the final results are, you know six-story building at Unquity House. This is an example of we didn't have, Unquity House is not on a five-acre parcel. So we were able to fold in some additional single-family house lots to get to five acres. And the implication for that is, you know, the multifamily unit capacity under these zoning parameters is 161. But because all of these parcels are below the minimum lot size, those count towards the land area in the dwelling unit per acre calculation, but they don't give us any units for unit capacity. So, you know, when we talk about this in the 40B context of like, you know, your, your denominator is your land area and your numerator is your affordable units. This is the same sort of situation. Your denominator is how physically big is your zoning district and your numerator is what is the zone capacity. So, you know, we were talking earlier about the, the paper mill site. One of the reasons why we can't do this on the paper mill site is the paper mill site is isolated and it's surrounded by state land, which you can't zone for, doesn't count towards your land area. So since that parcel is not five acres on its own, it just becomes impossible to use as a potential zoning district. Um, you know, again, Brush Hill Road, the two... Fuller Village parcels plus the Brush Hill Rehabilitation Center. I want to just flag something for you all just to kind of show you that we're we're paying attention to this stuff is, you know, under the parameters that we put in, which is, you know, a really enormous minimum lot size and, you know, a high dwelling units per acre, but not that high. It's 20 as opposed to 40 in Milton Village. Um, we got a multifamily unit capacity of 1,324 units on these sites under these parameters. Um, which everyone agrees is way too much. So this is a situation where, you know, we see maybe the location is okay for multifamily housing, um, you know, big parcels, already existing multifamily, the likelihood of redevelopment, you know, relatively low, but we have to change the parameters because we don't want 1300 units down here. Um, you know, even if it's a long shot, we don't want 1,300 units. And so this is one area where we're trying to play with these metrics a little bit to reduce that number. And that's something you can do in these scenario tests. You can adjust different parameters, minimum lot size, units per acre, lot coverage, to sort of get to a number that you're, you're more comfortable with. Um, you know, similar situation on Randolph Ave, non-residential parcels, relatively big parcels, you know, 20 units per acre, 130,000 square foot minimum lot size gets you to 280. So you can kind of see what we're trying to do on these parcels where, you know, these are big parcels. We're anticipating, you know, probably multiple decent sized apartment buildings. We set a building height of 2.5 stories over here, um, you know, again, because we don't want big apartment towers, you know, on Randolph Ave. So what you would probably see here under these zoning parameters is, you know, a, a small campus of, you know, smaller two and a half story buildings 
um, in, in this scenario. But again, is 280 the right number over there? Um, you know, we haven't heard a ton of comments about this property, but, you know, I think what we're trying to do is have any given subdistrict have the lowest possible density that it can and still allow us to hit our numbers. Um, um, and then finally, Granite Ave, um, you know, Granite Ave is probably, um, you know, a lot of people would consider it to be the most appropriate place for some greater density. Um, you know, there is a residential neighborhood over there, but, you know, true Granite Ave is very isolated and, you know, it's got, you know, good highway access and, you know, all of that. So, you know, that's something where, you know, you said a building height of six stories, um, not a lot of other zoning parameters, you know, you can get you know, 483, you can get upwards of 500, 600 units there if you want it. Um, you know, but again, you know, maybe that might be too much for Granite Ave. And so it becomes a balance between, you know, if you reduce the density on one spot, you're going to have to increase it somewhere else in order to maintain that equilibrium of 15 units per acre. Hey, Tim. So, yeah. Tim? Sorry, it's Lori. Um, back to Granite Ave. Is, isn't that state owned some of that? Yeah, so this is an interesting thing in the guidelines because um, generally speaking, you can't zone for state land um, and you really can't zone for town land either unless you have evidence of, you know, we're trying to dispose of this land for housing purposes. So we couldn't zone, you know, town hall, you know, because we're, we're not, town hall's not going anywhere. Um, and so that wouldn't count. The exception is, if you have a piece of publicly owned land, usually state-owned land, that is identified as a strategic housing site in your housing production plan, you can include that in your zoning district. And fortunately, um, you know, we had the foresight to um, identify the state DPW yard as a potential housing site in our housing production plan. I mean, you know, folks remember as recently as 2014, you know, the state kind of floating that property as, you know, a potential development site. They eventually pulled it back, but that kind of put it in our minds like, you know, at any point the state could be, you know, disposing of this land. And so, you know, we could zone for it. You know, Governor Healy has also said, you know, and, and Governor Baker before her, you know, wanting to put a priority on using state-owned property for housing, you know, development purposes. And so that's why we felt comfortable zoning for the state DPW yard. But couldn't you then add a little bit more acreage over by the paper mill that's state-owned and just expand that to get you to the five acres? So there's no state-owned land around the paper mill site that is in the housing production plan as a strategic housing site. Um, that's all part of the Neponset River Reservation. Um, which which is considered to be excluded land, you you can't zone on it. Okay. Um, so so that's another reason. You know, it the the paper mill is in a kind of unique situation because it's just not it doesn't abut anything else except for unzonable state land. Jim. Yes. Thank you. Um, I have my hand raised, by the way. Um, I have a question. When you added um, the lodge parcel test with your little um, zones in red crayon, um, you included Fuller Village. Now, Fuller Village, as we know, is age-restricted, and it's, um, it's a nonprofit um, setup 
for Fuller Village. How would you be able to, and, and if I could add in Curtis, 30 Curtis, yep. it's actually owned by the town for age-restricted um, affordable housing for seniors. How are you able to add, say, Fuller Village, and then in another district, Cur 30 Curtis, knowing that nothing can be, and they're not gonna tear down Fuller Village. And I don't think in all reality, 30 Curtis building is gonna disappear um, because it is part of the town's um, affordable senior housing plan, much the same as 600 Canton. So how is it that you're adding, so you're adding Fuller Village just to get the acreage for the number of units knowing full well, you can't really demolish Fuller Village and build for um, all types of age housing. So um, there's a couple things that work here and, and, and it's a good question. Um, just for clarity also, um, Unquity House, 30 Curtis Road is actually not owned by the town that's owned by Milton Residence for the Elderly. Um, oh, okay. sim similar to, to sort of the Fuller House, housing group, you know, it's a, it's a mission based housing developer, you know, interested in building senior housing. Um, so, um, huge asset to the town, you know, we love those folks. Um, the, the, the thinking behind those districts is, you know, we're required to zone for areas. Um, we're not required to build anything. And the zoning is really as far as it goes. So there are going to be areas where we have to zone places and there's a likelihood that we're going to see new development, um, you know, which which, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways is really good. And in, in some ways, you know, could be not so good. And so I think we're trying to achieve a balancing act of modulating the time frame of the impacts of new housing, where there are certain development sites that you know, are likely to be re redeveloped soon. There are development sites that are probably not going to be redeveloped soon. And then there are development sites that, you know, may never be redeveloped in our lifetimes, you know. Um, and so when you look at Fuller Village, you know, that's probably an area where, again, you know, Fuller Village is is not brand new, but, you know, it's, 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 it's not old either. You know, this is good quality housing. And, you know, if there's 300 something units on those two parcels and we rezone for 500 or 600 units, you know, if, even if we go that high, you know, again, the likelihood of the Fuller Housing Corporation saying, all right, we're going to tear down our existing nice facility and rebuild it for a handful of extra units. Again, that's a relatively low likelihood. Now there may be a, there may be a come a time, decades from now, where that housing is no longer that new, and they may want to avail themselves of their zoning and say we want to rebuild our facility, and now we can do this by right and and put additional units on, and and that's something that they can do in sort of the long term future. Um, you know, if I may add that they, they're under age restriction, right? At Fuller Village. So, if I may um, think that decades from now, um, seniors will no longer need, you know, housing. I, I don't think so. I think there'll still be a need, but in order to get around the age restricted, they would have to nullify their whole 
um, complex as age restricted to come into compliance. So let let me and, and, and this is my fault for not addressing this earlier when we talked about age restrictions. So the, the, the law says that you can't mandate an age restriction, right? So if we were to put together zoning that said only 55 plus, they would say you're not compliant. If you are a developer of age restricted housing, you could absolutely use the zoning. So you can't mandate it, but there's also no prohibition of, of age restricted housing. So it's the same as anything else. You know, f- you know the, the land that Fuller Village is on didn't used to be age-restricted housing land. Um, it used to be something else entirely, and they went and they built age-restricted housing on it. So the zoning can't, the zoning has to allow for non-age-restricted housing, but it also doesn't necessarily have to preclude it. So if the Fuller Housing Corporation wanted to hold on to that land and redevelop it decades in the future, they could absolutely still build senior housing, affordable housing, you know, whatever they want as the property owner. Now they could also, you know, sell the land to another developer and, you know, make a tidy profit and kind of walk off into the sunset. I suspect they won't do that. You know, they're a mission-based organization. They're interested in maintaining and operating, you know, senior affordable housing. And so I suspect that they'll do that. Um, So the zoning can't mandate it, but it also doesn't prohibit it. Um, And the same goes for Unquity House. Um, I happen to think that Unquity House as an older building and also the site plan at Unquity House has a lot of parking. There's a lot of kind of just empty land over there. I think that may actually be, you know, a more medium term redevelopment site. Um, And again, you know, Milton Residence for the Elderly owns that property. Um, You know, they could decide to avail themselves of their new zoning and, and build a new, you know, senior affordable housing facility over there. And I think that's a really important thing to understand about the zoning is that when you allow by right multifamily zoning, you open up the possibilities for now, in all likelihood, the majority of any housing that gets built is going to be market rate developers coming in. But, you know, currently, you know, the only people that are building affordable housing in the town of Milton are MRE, Fuller Housing and 40B developers. When you create multifamily zoning, any property owner could decide, I want to build affordable housing here. Um, and, and sort of they don't have that added step of we've got to spend a year getting zoning through town meeting and then another year in a special permit process. That's money for developers. And so when you create a streamlined zoning process, it opens up the opportunities for more types of developers, um, you know, including some of those mission based developers to come in. So um, so that was my fault for not clarifying that earlier. Um, could, could I do a follow-up? Um, so take 30 Curtis or Uncle House, whichever you want to call it. Um, that huge parking lot is really never full, ever. So could they mix use that, that property, leave the uh, 30 Curtis as their affordable senior housing, which is different than Fuller Village. It's not affordable senior housing down at Fuller Village. Um, And then build another building comparable in size, perhaps, to 30 Curtis already in existence, and then have that as a multi-use. On that one property, you could have an age-restricted building and a non-age-restricted building on the site that is 30 Curtis. 
You, you could potentially, um, but what you would need to look at in that case is, you know, does the zoning create a maximum dwelling units per acre um, on that site? And, you know, how many additional units could you build on that site with the existing, um, you know, uh, senior housing already there? Um, and so that may be a situation where, you know, if there's 130 units there today and the new zoning allows for 160 units, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze to do a new development? 30 units, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it all really depends on what the ultimate, um, you know, parameters are at the end. May I um, make sort of an observation then after this, um, I was focused on these age-restricted um, parcels, um, that in your charts, it shows um, must maybe also add, but can also, but how would you do your chart to indicate and help educate um, the people that are trying to grasp all this information that what you just said, it doesn't exclude age restriction either. How would you change your chart to help get that message out? I don't know, but I should, because it's an important message. Um, I'll, 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 I'll have to figure that out. Um, it's, it's a question that hasn't come up because we haven't necessarily been talking about specific geographies yet. Um, but now that we're starting to get into that, you know, we're starting to hear that question a little bit more. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll figure out a way to make sure that that's kind of front and center in, in our future presentations. Thank you very much, Tim. Yep. So, so just, Mr. just Blair? to wrap up, you know, in, in the, in the situations that we tested Tim, with Tom those sub-districts. Tom, you have a question? Yes. I did. Hi, um, Mr. Sawinski. I, I just had a question before you moved on from the large parcel slides. Um, I just had a question just about two of them. Uh, really quickly, uh, the District 4 parcel on Randolph Ave, um, that's a commercially owned property, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, how, did these par how did that particular parcel come to the town's attention to be rezoned? So again, you know, one, one, of the, one of the guiding principles that we had was what are existing large parcels, what are existing non-commercial parcels, and, and then, you know, do they fit the parameters for, you know, size um, in terms of, you know, a, a five acre or greater subdistrict? And so once you go through all of those parameters, you start to peel away a lot of, um, you know, a, lo a lot of parcels. You know, the, the, the paper mill site, we looked at the paper mill site, you know, we're not able to get a compliant subdistrict out of that. Um, you know, there's the Salamando construction yard on Blue Hill Ave, um, you know, which is, again, you know, large-ish parcel. Um, non-residential, it's kind of, you know, industrial construction property. Um, but again, that's maybe two and a half, three acres tops. In order to get a compliant subdistrict out of that, for instance, you'd be folding in a lot of single family houses. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, we may be compelled to zone in single family neighborhoods along Elliott Street, perhaps. But if we can get away with it, we don't want to do that. Um, and so, you know, this is a situation where, you know, large parcel, commercial, you know, the animal rescue league parcel behind it is just blank, you know, vacant. I mean, it's, it's, it's effectively part of the reservation, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's not technically part of the reservation at that point. So, um, you know, this was just something where, you know, it, it, it checked a couple boxes, it fit the parameters, 
Um, and so we wanted to see what would happen, um, you know, if we zoned for it and how it would fit into the kind of greater um, collection of sub-districts that we were testing. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And then um, I just and I and the reason I asked this is is just because I know there are a lot of properties like this. This is a commercial property; it could be sold very easily. So I expect a big development up here on Randolph Ave, which is a very dangerous road. The rotary coming in, um, and that's why I just asked that particular question because it was unique to me and um, how it became part of um, the presentation. Just because uh, it, it is it is a commercial yeah. property. Um, and the, the yeah, next one was the next slide, um, Mr. Sawinski. It's just the uh, District 5 slide, which uh, incorporates the VFW um, and the public works yard for the Commonwealth, correct? Yes. And uh, I was just wondering, um, you know, we talked, you had said earlier, and this kind of spawns this question about how some of these properties will not be developed or, or very unlikely to be developed. Um, you know, as a Precinct 6 resident, um, you know, I can very easily see the VFW selling from to an out-of-state company for millions of dollars. I can also see the mass DPW yard being unloaded by the state. And I, and I, I guess you know these are all questions that we don't know. But um, that would be my concern, especially in this area, up against 93. People from their apartment could look to 93 and not probably walk to Cedar Grove. Certainly not North Quincy. So the last mile, so to speak. So you know. Um, I think that you know this parcel, using your words, a sloppy development. Uh, this is something that comes to mind, and also the Randolph Ave parcel. So, and, and I know this is just initially. We've done a ton of work on this, and I don't mean to criticize. I was just, I'm just trying to think it through myself, um, just as, especially as to these two parcels. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I think those are all good observations and and things that we've kind of thought of, and and sure. you know, ultimately. You know, again, you can you, you can draw a five acre line around anywhere in town and and try to make you know sub districts you know with with parameters that make sense. You know, we try to impose some kind of basic um, you know criteria on parcels. Um, you know, I, I think ultimately, you know, we want to we want to be aware of the impacts of development, especially large scale multifamily development. But you know, you, you can't you, you can only hide so much. You know, if the state is is compelling you to create zoning, you know, you're eventually going to create zoning that may lead to some multifamily housing being developed. Yeah. Um, and so, where you've got these larger parcels, there's the opportunity to allow for you know some more creative site planning. Um, some more kind of, um, you know, flexibility in terms of circulation and kind of getting on and off the sites, um, you know, that doesn't maybe necessarily exist in, you know, again, the LH Street corridor, which is in the transit zone and is kind of, you know, the most densely kind of developed part of town. And so, you know, there are virtues and vices to all of these things. Um, I think Randolph Ave, is is just dreadful, um, and it's it's kind of a black eye for the state that it's been allowed to be in the condition that it's in for so long in terms of you know safety and speed, um, and so that's that's something that I think we need to think critically about. You know, on on the one hand, there's land that works. On the other hand, you know, do you really want to have a lot of development over here? Um, and I think these are still open questions. I think Granite Ave is is a slightly different case. Um, you know, Granite Ave is definitely a tough street, um, but I think that there are opportunities to sort of, you know, get people on the highway um, and just get them out. <laughs> um, you know, to, to Granite Ave is is a slightly different story than the state DPW yard. I would not walk to Cedar Grove 
from the state DBW yard, but, you know, potentially someone could conceivably, you know, hop on their bike and, and either, you know, get on the trail from there and kind of get to one of the Mattapan line stations or, you know, again, they're kind of right there on the highway. So, um, you know, there, like I said, there are virtue and vices to all of these. And I think ultimately, you know, we're going to be looking at, you know, a number of sub districts and, you know, have to, as a town, you know, through the planning board, you know, through the public process that we're trying to run, um, you know, we are in the process of, I sent a letter last week to all town meeting members, um, asking them to keep an eye on this stuff. Um, the planning board is putting a mailing out, um, in, um, in everyone's water bill. So, you know, by October, November, everyone in town will, if they open their water bill, we'll, we'll have some information on MBTA community zoning. So we're trying to get people into this process and start to weigh these issues, um, and, and try to figure out, you know, where's the best place to do this stuff. No, Tim, I, I really appreciate that. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to ask a bunch of questions, but I was trying to ask questions and I was messing up no. the microphone. Um, so this is my, no, no, that's, my, why, that's, that's, that's why I'm here. No worries. That's my last one, really. And that's kind of like a, 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 an overall question, because when I think of transit-oriented developments, you know, I started hearing about them like in the 90s. Um, I think of like that you walk to the train station. And with these parcels, we're not doing that. And I, you made a comment earlier about it, but when I, when I look at the map where you can walk to Milton or Central, that's great. Um, it encompasses all that area uh, by Elliott Street. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, um, you know, that is a true transit-oriented development or how it's supposed to work, where you just walk. And, and we're creating zones to spread it out. Um, and, you know, that is a concern, especially a concern for people in East Milton, I think, uh, when they look at Granite Ave, um, the, the possibilities of this. So... I think if uh, a hypothetical, I guess, would be if, if we're going to go this route of spreading it out, which at this point I don't think is the meaning of the legislation at all, um, uh, I would assume and I would trust that some of the more um, denser development would occur within that quarter mile to a half mile of the physical stations. And the less would perhaps be the ones that are much farther away, like I said, just a hypothetical if you um understand my guess my so comment. Th this is this is a fundamental question that the town needs to answer and, and i say the town because I, I don't think it should be me first of all um and i don't even necessarily think it should be you know the planning board quite frankly because this is you know this is the issue do we want to concentrate development in the transit area which you know, if you look at the kind of the, the black letter of the law is, is what it's about, or do we want to take advantage of the flexibility that the state has granted us to not concentrate all of that development in one relatively, relatively small geography? Um, you know, we have been trying to test both of those options. Um, you know, we've got initial tests on th these are not the only sub districts that we've tested. Yeah. Um, we'll get to a couple more in a minute. Um, but, you know, our technical assistance providers that are, you know, the expertise in running this model um, are going to be providing us, you know, effectively with, you know, what does compliance look with the large parcels, you know, based on the input and feedback we've gotten from the planning board? And what does compliance look like incorporating more of the transit zone? Um, and so we'll, we'll get to that right now. And this is just sort of the, the summary of these tests. So, you know, again, technically, 
we've got compliant districts here um, because we are we have zoning for 2,845 units. The district size is above the minimum, and you know the 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 density of the districts overall is 23.8, which is way greater than 15 units per acre. So technically, we could probably get some compliant districts here, and we'll be off to the races with the state. But that also includes, you know, this Brush Hill Road district with 1,324 units, which we absolutely do not want, um, and and maybe includes some some densities that maybe we're not comfortable with. I think the point that the gentleman earlier just made, you know, of you know, do we want to have, you know, a little bit of density outside the transit area and kind of focus the density in the transit area? This doesn't necessarily do that. And so, if you were to make those changes maybe you would start to see these compliant kind of metrics go away. And so that means that we also need to look at the entire transit area itself. Um, so again, this is the half mile radius um, around all of these stations. The blue parcels are within the half mile. The white parcels are, are not. Um, so when we initially tested this area, and if you know if, if you either live here or visited here, you know that you know in the north and the west of this district is is among the most sort of densely developed areas of town. Um, it's a C zone, 7,500 square foot minimum lot size. In reality, almost this entire neighborhood predates zoning, and so these are more akin to 5,000, 6,000 square foot lots. And so, if you were going to create zoning in this area, you can't do what we're trying to do on the big parcels. You can't zone for 20, 30, 40, you know, units in an apartment building because you, you physically can't fit them in. One thing about the compliance model, which again is the state software tool that they're going to use to judge compliance, is it doesn't take into account lot consolidation and it doesn't take into account subdivision. So if you have, you know, in the real world, if you set a 10,000 square foot minimum lot size, somebody could buy two adjacent 5,000 square foot lots and then have a compliant lot. The model is not assuming that. The model is looking at your parcels as they exist today and telling you, do you have unit capacity on those parcels or not? And so that has implications because on the one end, the pink parcels that are shaded here are parcels that are below 5,000 square feet. And we've identified 5,000 square feet as really the smallest possible parcel where you could fit a multifamily building, which is, according to state statute, three or more units. So effectively think, you know, a three-family house on a 5,000 square foot lot. So any of these pink parcels are, are non-compliant. You can't build anything here because they're less than 5,000 square feet. On the other end of the spectrum, you have these yellow lots, which are big lots. Um, in sort of Milton Hill and the Columbines, the A and B zones over here, you've got 20,000, 40,000, 80,000 square foot lots. And again, because the model is not taking subdivision into account, if you set a minimum lot size of, say, 10,000 feet, and say, if you've got 10,000 feet, you can build a four-unit house. I'll use Hutchinson Field as an example. It's a bad one because you actually can't build on Hutchinson's Field. But, you know, Hutchinson's Field gets a zoned capacity of four units, even though it's enormous. 
um, you know, all of these parcels that are acre or more, we've got a sub acre minimum lot size, but we're only getting credit for four units on any of these parcels because again, the model is not taking subdivision into account. And so again, if you think about that math problem about how you get to overall density, you've got your unit capacity in the numerator and you've got your overall land area in the denominator. And so these pink and yellow parcels are really dragging your density down. When we tested this, you know, we tested some really basic, really low density scenarios in this entire area. And we got to an overall density of like eight units per acre, which is, you know, a little bit more than half of where we need to be. And so if you want to zone in this area, you start to, you need to start to change things, you know? And so what we start to look at is, you know, all of those formerly pink and yellow parcels are now ghosted out in this. And we've kind of shrunk the transit area district to really include as many developable parcels as possible and not parcels that either can't be developed or are just basically not contributing enough to your overall density. Um, and so, you know, we did the exercise of kind of shrinking that. And then just based on kind of like the street configuration and the parcel size, we kind of created these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, um, you know, sub sub districts. Um, you know, the, the, the dimensional parameters are not that different in any of these, but we did want to kind of just break them down into chunks based on, again, parcel size, parcel shape, um, you know, street configuration. So um, these, are, these are areas that we're still, you know, looking into, do these need to be a part of our zoning districts or not? Um, I think in terms of the pros and cons of development, you know, when we talk about the large parcels, we try to target non-residential, you know, big parcels where you could sort of build big apartment buildings. Um, you wouldn't be, you know, demolishing existing single family houses. You wouldn't be, you know, in the middle of a single family neighborhood, you know, and, and again, if you think about how closely the town treasures its physical character, that becomes really important. Um, you know, obviously a new big multifamily building is going to be different than a lot of what you see in the town of Milton, but, you know, at least it's not cheek to jowl with just a bunch of tiny single family houses. Um, that being said, there are benefits to zoning in this area. Um, you know, if we were to zone on Granite Ave, you know, the minute that a developer purchases one of those parcels, you know, within two years, you've got. 200 units where zero used to exist. And so the impacts of that are very quick and acute and concentrated in one very specific area. In a situation like, you know, we're calling it the Elliott Street Corridor, although it, it, it includes, you know, other, other neighborhoods. If you rezone this area, like I said earlier, hundreds of property owners making hundreds of decisions whether to redevelop or not. And so the probability of any given parcel changing in any given year is actually relatively low. And the pace of change becomes slower and the overall change in a neighborhood becomes more organic and more easily absorbed and easily kind of tolerated. Um, you know, we're not looking at these parcels and saying, you know, okay, we want apartment building us on Elliott Street. In fact, you know, what we would be trying to do if we zone this area is take advantage of the existing non-conformities, you know, where you've got, 
you know, a driveway on either side and you want to make sure you take advantage of the fact that, you know, people aren't going to want to tear down a house and have to build in the center of their lot because they won't be able to fit a driveway in. Um, so what we're hoping to do is create zoning in these areas if we decide to do it where an addition or, you know, dormering out on the third floor or, you know, doing something to sort of make an internal change to the house creates that three unit building as opposed to a tear down and, you know, a new three family house going up. And so that would be something where we would kind of try to modulate those zoning parameters in this area. But again, it becomes a fundamental question of if you have the opportunity and the possibility of not zoning this area, which, you know, again, includes tons of single family houses, also a National Register Historic District in Milton Hill, you know, which again, you know, folks may not want to kind of put at risk, you know, do you want to zone this in the first place? And again, it speaks to those pros and cons. This is transit oriented development. This is where the transit is. Um, so if you want to concentrate development where the transit is, you may not have a choice. But if you want to spread those impacts out and maybe look elsewhere, then you start to look at some of those other subdistricts that we were looking at. Um, and so, you know, this is something we're going to be presenting some, you know, what I'll call final options to the planning board. But, you know, we'll see if there's more iterating to go on here. But, you know, we've given a lot of feedback to our technical assistance providers, um, you know, through our public forums, through our discussions at the planning board. Um, and, you know, we're trying to come up with options for compliance that I think, you know, achieve a lot of those planning goals that, you know, have been articulated in our previous efforts. Tim? Do we have some questions? Yeah, just one quick one. Is uh, the Fompont site in Lavery College included in any of this? Um, they are not included. Those are, uh, the, the, those are another type of parcel that the guidelines um, prohibit you from zoning. So um, educational facilities, churches, institutions. So we couldn't rezone Milton Hospital, for instance. We couldn't rezone Curry College. Well, Salem, um, you doesn't know, get again, accreditation back. Does that change? Uh, I mean, I, I think it becomes an open question. Um, you know, that would have to be an argument that we made to the state. That like, you know, we are zoning this area, you know, in anticipation of the school not being a going concern anymore, um, you know, which they may or may not decide to go with. Um, but, you know, I, I think that is, you know, if we decide that's something we want to do, um, I would have to look at the area and kind of see the acreage. You know, again, if it adds up to five acres, then then great. If not, we'd have to start to fold in some other parcels around there and you'd have to think about what the implications of of that for zoning are. Tim, is it kind of fair to say that it, it looks to me like one of the ways of looking at this presentation here is that we kind of have a choice to boil it down, a plan, an A or B, the transit area subdistrict framework or the more uh, dispersed um, zoning throughout the town? Is that kind of the presentation here? Is, is it we kind of got um, two ways of looking at I it? Wouldn't I, w I wouldn't say it's A or B, yep. but it's maybe A, B, C, D, depending on, you know, because, you know, there's the other the, the other thing that, you know, we haven't really talked about is East Milton. Um, you know, East Milton is going to be the subject of its own separate zoning process. Um, you know, we just kicked that off at the planning board last week. Um, you know, stay tuned for that if you live in the area. 
Um, and for that reason, we haven't really been talking about East Milton for the purposes of MBTA communities. But, you know, there is an argument to be made that, like, you know, we're on a path towards rezoning in East Milton anyway. Why don't we fold it into MBTA communities, get credit for it, and then do the zoning that we actually want to do? Because the, the other thing about MBTA community zoning is the only thing the state is concerned with is meeting the minimum requirements in a buy right zoning scheme. So one thing that you can do is create zoning that meets the minimum guidelines and then create a special permit process over and above that where you can maybe give some extra density in exchange for more affordable housing, more mixed use, you know, all of the goodies that we like to sort of do special permit zoning for. And so that's something where, you know, maybe you want to include East Milton with the understanding that anything you do under the MBTA community scheme is probably going to be too low density to attract a lot of development and people will want to develop under your special permit zoning. Um, you know, the other thing is there could be any of a combination of, you know, maybe you want to not do Brush Hill Road and then you just do, you know, three and four on this map. Um, or, you know, so I, I think it's less A or B and more, you know, I, I think I think that question needs to be answered. And then based on that, you've got a sort of a menu of options um, that, you know, you can you can try to figure out. Um, now, a lot of this is very integrated and very highly contingent upon, you know, if you crank up the density in subdistrict five, then maybe you can lower it somewhere else. Or if you lower it in Granite Ave, you've got to make up for that somewhere else. One thing that we're finding is of the metrics that we have to hit, um, there's a minimum size that is super easy to hit. We're going to be more than 50 acres no matter what. It's impossible not to. Um, the, the overall zone capacity, we can get really close to 2461. It's the overall density of 15 units per acre that becomes the trickiest one and the one that's kind of causing the most heartache in terms of you know, having to zone for places where maybe you wouldn't want to do as much density as you want. And the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, <clears throat> every town is unique, um, but, but there's a lot of towns also that have the same kind of issues. The problem in, in Milton is really the area that is closest to transit is probably the least suitable for broad scale multifamily housing. Um, I, I use the example of Dedham all the time. Dedham has one commuter rail station near Legacy Place. They're rezoning Legacy Place, you know, putting a bunch of, you know, zoning for apartment buildings on the parking lot. You know, I think they're done, you know, with this, you know, so they had a really easy go of it. Whereas in Milton, you know, in order to get to compliance strictly in the transit area, you're dramatically changing the physical character of the neighborhood in a way that a lot of people find to be just intolerable. And so we're kind of compelled to bring in all these other parcels and try to kind of work around this, again, fundamental issue of you just can't do a ton of high density development in this area because the parcels are so small. And, you know, if, if, if you're interested in preserving the physical character of the neighborhood, you really have to look around and, and, and try to kind of solve for that. So, um, long answer to your question, <laughs> um, but it's, it's not quite A and B, but, you know, we're, we're trying to really hone in on a discrete set of options so that we're not spending 
the rest of our lives, you know, testing this and testing that. And that's kind of why we've kind of set some parameters I mean, on this stuff. Do you, do you have a sense of what the timeline is on East Milton? Because, I mean, there are ways that we can show that we are, we have achieved interim compliance by taking affirmative steps, which we are. You see what I mean? I know that we've got to have this December 31, 2023 deadline to submit the district compliance application. But I mean, in good faith, if it's a significant issue with regards to the effect of East Milton Square on all this, like, do you have an idea of when those decisions are going to be addressed and possibly made? I mean, on, on East Milton, um, you know, this is something that the planning board is going to be talking about next week. Um, you know, we've asked our technical assistance providers to kind of include East Milton in the scenario testing that we're doing. And so that becomes, you know, it's kind of in the conversation. But again, at what level do you zone East Milton, um, you know, so that you're not undercutting, you know, the other zoning process that you're doing? Does it actually help you to zone for East Milton? You know, it could be, you know, you zone for it at a certain level and it's actually bringing your overall density down. Then you may not want to do it. Um, so I think, you know, the other thing to kind of, you know, keep in mind is, you know, we need to maintain compliance, but it doesn't have to be the same compliance. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, we may create a set of zoning districts that gets us to compliance in December and then a year later kind of think better of it and say, you know, actually we don't want to have Brush Hill Road as part of, you know, our package. And so we can always go back and amend that and then send that back to HLC and kind of check it off. Um, you know, we've got to maintain compliance, but the state really doesn't care, you know, what form that takes as long as you're checking all the boxes and, and kind of hitting all the, uh, you know, the, the, the minimum thresholds. And so, you know, there may be a point where, you know, we keep East Milton in and then we take it out um, and replace it with something else or, you know, vice versa. So this is, you know, this is the reality going forward, but, you know, we can we can shape it, you know, as long as we hit the minimum thresholds that the, the guidelines lay out. Tim, what's the matter with Brush Hill Road? Whenever you, for the majority of you stay driving on a district, it's been Brush Hill Road. What's the matter with Brush Hill Road and why is it always the first thing that you say you want to drop? It's, you know, it's there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. Um, you know, under the parameters that we have right now that kind of are part of an overall framework that kind of hits compliance, it requires a level of density that is intolerable. 1,324 units on, on Brush Hill Road in that section is, is just way too much. Um, and so that may end up being a district where it's, it's not contributing what it needs to contribute from an overall density perspective and may need to fall out. Um, you know, that being said, there may be other districts that, that also, you know, fall out. Um, you know, it's really, there's no, you know, there's nothing behind it except for it's the one that's on the tip of my tongue, you know, at, at the moment. Um, so, you know, that's just something, you know, there, there's no, I wouldn't say there's anything behind it. Tim, just real quick. Um, like, it's funny, you were mentioning, like, Dedham, like, they had a space that you could just, you know, put a whole bunch of units in there and they're done. What about the golf course? That's huge. And a lot of it's on Milton. Did you guys look into uh, rezoning the Milton section of the golf course? 
So again, that is, um, although it's a golf course and it's leased by Granite Links, that is actually town owned land. And, and, and again, you're prohibited from zoning town on land it. unless you can demonstrate that there's been a recent history of trying to um, dispose of it. Okay, got it. Thank you. What about Wallston? Um, I don't know about Wallston. Um, I'll have to I'll have to double check on what the, I, I think there's I, I think there's a guideline against zoning for that type of facility, but I'll have to double check on that. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think one, well, I, I'll, I'll double check on that and, and, and get back, get back to you all on Thanks, that one. Tim. I'm not trying to play ga gotcha. It just, it just, it yeah. just occurred to me. Yeah. Thank you. No, 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 no. I appreciate that. And, and again, I'm, I'm here to answer questions right. and, and, and this isn't, this isn't a challenge or, or a threat. Right, right. I can't, I don't think I can be gotten on this cause I've heard every <laughs> single question. Right, right. Um, so, but, you know, obviously feel free to try if that's what you're interested right. in. Um, I want to talk about noncompliance um, because it's something that's been coming up, you know, ever since we started doing this process. So the statute lays out a penalty that is if you're not compliant, you're not eligible for these three grant programs. Um, in their guidelines, HLC has also said that they may take noncompliance into consideration in their discretionary grant programs. No details on that except for it's in the guidelines and they haven't identified other grant programs. But these three, Housing Choice Initiative, Local Capital Projects Fund, and MassWorks are specifically named in the statute. And so we'll deal with those. Um, Housing Choice Initiative is a program that incentivizes um, towns to engage in housing production strategies. So there, there's a certain, you know, if you, you know, zone, if you permit X number or X percentage of your existing housing stock for new housing in a given year, you sort of become a housing choice community. And then you have access to kind of exclusive capital grant programs, you know, for building infrastructure projects. We've well, never been eligible for housing is? choice. Um, and so, you know, it is what it is. The local capital projects fund is actually um, a really previously unknown um, grant fund that's actually um, generated by casino revenue. Um, and so a portion of casino revenue goes into the local capital projects fund. This is a different program from the other two because the other two programs are sort of application-based discretionary grant programs, whereas the local capital projects fund is appropriated every year by the legislature and they do basically whatever they want with it. For the past 10 or so years, the local capital projects fund has been used as a way to supplement state subsidies to local housing authorities. And so uh, of the three grant programs, the local capital projects fund is the one that we've actually benefited from the most um, because a certain portion of the Milton Housing Authority's revenue comes from the state and then a certain portion of the state's contribution to Milton Housing Authority comes out of the local capital projects fund. You know, depending on the year, it could be between twenty and thirty thousand um, dollars. So that's something that you know Annually? is you know. Like, is that all I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry. Was there a question? Yeah, I just wanted to confirm that it was twenty or thirty thousand a year. We would be likely to get yeah. from that. Uh, in, in, in the recent past, yes, that's been around what, what the figure is. 
Thank you. Now, now w- one thing that has kind of come up in the sort of conversation around these guidelines, and, and again, I, I say that the Local Capital Projects Fund was a relatively unknown grant program. Um, a lot of folks, when they so th- there was a there was an interim compliance deadline in January, you had to submit an action plan, you know, kind of outlining you know what your plan to get to compliance was, and if you if if you submitted a satisfactory plan, you're considered to be compliant. You're still eligible for all these grants. You can still get your capital projects fund contribution. There were several communities that didn't submit an action plan, and they got a letter from the state that basically said your housing authority is now not going to get this money um, because you're not complying with the law. And that's what it is. And, you know, a lot of people kind of felt that there was an injustice there <laughs> um, where, you know, the state is trying to promote housing development and kind of, you know, help with housing affordability. And in the same, you know, in the same breath is taking money away from local housing authorities. Um, you know, you can, you can take, different sides on this, you know, it's, it's a stick, it's a penalty in the law. And, you know, the state legislators that created this law thought that it would be an effective, you know, deterrent to noncompliance. Um, on the other hand, like, yeah, it sucks to take money from local housing authorities, which overall, you know, local housing authorities are not really a part of this zoning process. So it's kind of like pulling the rug from underneath them. The latest budget that was just signed by the governor last week um, you know, in its appropriation for the local capital projects fund effectively creates a, a carve out that acknowledges, you know, we're still going to give you the money, even if you're not compliant with MBTA communities, section 3A. So effectively, you know, the budget undercuts the law um, that the legislature passed in, in 2021. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, they made that decision. So this is a grant program that potentially could have been at risk with noncompliance, at least in the coming fiscal year. Um, it's not at risk. Um, and, and so that's kind of, you know, an effect of the most recent budget cycle. MassWorks is kind of the biggest one um, of the grant programs, you know, tens of millions of dollars of a year in, you know, just straight up infrastructure grants to cities and towns. Um, this is right from the Commonwealth's website, competitive grant program that provides the largest and most flexible source of capital funds to municipalities and other eligible public entities, primarily for public infrastructure projects that support and accelerate housing production, spur private development and create jobs throughout the Commonwealth. That program is between 66 and $95 million a year that goes to, you know, applicants, you know, to this program. Um, it's been around since I think 2010. Um, we've only ever gotten one MassWorks grant since 2011, which is the latest data that I was able to find. Um, the streetscape improvements that happened in Central Square or Central Ave, extending up Elliott Street into Milton Village, um, you know, the, the the brick on the sidewalks, the planters, the curbs, um, all of that was done with um, with a million dollar MassWorks grant. One million dollars? Um, yes. That was one. Thank you. We have not been a big player in the MassWorks game. Um, this is something where if, you know, you got to be in it to win it. Um, and to my knowledge, we have not submitted many applications for infrastructure projects. So, um, you know, we've only gotten one. Um, typical similar sized towns, so like within 10% of our population, tend to have gotten, you know, two awards worth $2.2 million in that same time period. So, you know, we haven't applied for many grants. 
we probably could expect to have gotten another one in the time since 2011. Um, but, you know, again, not a situation where, you know, I, you know, I used to work in city of Boston and, and we would, you know, consistently get half a dozen mass works grants for different projects just because there's a lot more going on. Um, but Tim, and, and, like, know, if I'm, very... I'm just want to make sure I'm hearing this right, because I'm, I'm new to this. So we're looking at a potential loss of one million thirty thousand dollars if we're not in compliance with this. Right. Which could add in how many students for the public schools, which are. One million in the last ten years. In the last ten years, okay. Yeah. So say just say it. Yeah, but in right? Am I wrong? Am I am I looking at the math wrong? You can well, look at I, the I math mean, it's, a lot of it's, it's adding. So if we it's, added it's, the students, we added the new kids, and then we're looking at. I mean, how many all these additional housing units? With assume half of them have kids. It, right? Or am I? I'm not okay. I just wanted to Catholic school. I just so, want to make sure I'm on the. Okay. So we'll, 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 we'll get to some of the, the fiscal impacts of, of this, or, or at least the potential fiscal impacts. Um, but, you know, there, there are other things to kind of keep in mind about noncompliance. So these, these are the penalties that are laid out in the statute. Um, but, but since then, um, you know, both the governor and the attorney general have made, um, you know, pretty strong statements to the effect of our expectation is that towns are going to comply with this um you know and the thing about the law is the the explicit language in the law is that you know an mbt community shall have a zoning district um it's not may have or it's not we want them to have it's it shall have and so um you know if you're not com if, if you don't have a zoning district you're in violation of, of Section 3A of Chapter 40A, the Mass General Laws. Um, and so there are, you know, unknown consequences that we won't know about until the compliance deadlines pass. Um, one thing that we do know is this advisory from um, the Office of the Attorney General that came out. I think this was back in March, um, you know, basically saying, um, all MBT communities must comply with the law. Communities that do not currently have a compliant multifamily zoning district must take steps outlined in the DHCD guidelines to demonstrate interim compliance. Communities that fail to comply with the law may be subject to civil enforcement action. Non-compliant MBTA communities are also subject to the administrative consequences of being rendered ineligible to receive certain forms of state funding. Importantly, MBTA communities cannot avoid their obligations under the law by foregoing this funding. The law requires that MBTA communities shall have a compliant zoning district and does not provide any mechanism by which a city or town may opt out of this requirement. MBTA communities that fail to comply with the law's requirements also risk liability under federal and state fair housing laws. The Massachusetts Anti-Discrimination Law and Federal Fair Housing Act prohibit towns and cities from using their zoning power for a discriminatory purpose or with a discriminatory effect. An MBTA community may violate these laws if, for example, its zoning restrictions have the effect of unfairly limiting housing opportunities for families with children, individuals who receive housing subsidies, people of color, people with disabilities, or other protected groups. So, you know, this is the Attorney General of the Commonwealth effectively saying um, the state will take you to court if you're not compliant. Now, what that looks like, what that means, you know, if and when it actually happens, you know, how quickly is it going to happen? Is there going to be, you know, leeway? Um, these are all unknown things. 
Um, but this is the strongest language we've had yet outside of the language of the law itself that, you know, the executive branch intends to aggressively pursue and encourage compliance with this law. Um, and so it's a big deal um, because, you know, of the rapid transit communities and, and, you know, I'm part of periodic meetings with planners and officials from, from the 12 communities, you know, everyone's, everyone is racing to this deadline. Um, Brookline, Newton, um, all of them are, 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 are racing to the deadline to get to compliance zoning. And so, um, you know, we are also racing, um, you know, because it's coming up and we certainly want to do what's best for the town. And, and a big part of that is, is not being non-compliant when, you know, the music shuts off um, on, on midnight on January 1. Um, and so we don't know what this will look like if, if it happens, um, but, but it's out there and, you know, is, is, is a very, very strongly worded statement from the attorney general's office. And so, you know, when we talk about, you know, what are we foregoing, you know, do we want to consider compliance? Do we have a choice? You know, my opinion as, as a planning professional is, is there is no choice in the matter, um, because otherwise, you know, we're in for a world of hurt from the attorney general's office. So, um, you know, that's why, <laughs> that, that's why we're out here, you know, every two weeks at the planning board working on this stuff, you know, every month, you know, trying to get people involved in this process and get input on folks. Um, so we, uh, the chair talked earlier about the warrant committee's kind of role in this process. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about and, you know, on, honestly, it, it's it's up to you to, to tell me <laughs> what your role is in this process, um, you know, because, you know, you, you're, you're you're the warrant committee, you know, you're charged more than I do. Um, but one of the things that the planning board has been particularly concerned with and, and you know, there was just a, a comment and a question to this effect earlier is, you know, what is the effect of this zoning going to be on town finances? Um, you know, we have a certain population, um, we have a certain housing stock, um, you know, we have a certain school population, we have a certain level of service, uh, of police and fire, and, you know, we have infrastructure, you know, what are the effects of this going to be on, on our, um, you know, on our, on our town finances. One thing I will say is that we are using some grant money that we got from the state. Um, we've commissioned a fiscal impact analysis which with a, a firm RKG Associates, you know, very reputable um, planning firm that does this sort of work all over the Commonwealth and all over the country, um, you know, where they'll basically, you know, look at what we're proposing for zoning, you know, try to game out, you know, what is the timeline for new units coming online? And then, you know, they're looking at the town budget, they're looking at the school budget, they're looking at the history of call volumes from police and fire. Um, you know, they're looking at, you know, the school age population, um, you know, based on our existing housing stock, they're talking to all the department heads to put together and try to model out, you know, if this zoning happens, how quickly can we expect, you know, there to be new units coming online? Uh, you know, what is their impact going to be on 
services in town? What is the impact going to be on additional tax revenue? Um, you know, which is the other side of that coin. So that is a process that's ongoing. Um, we will get that to you. Um, I'll probably send it to the planning board first uh, when I get it, but I, I will send it to the warrant committee second. I promise. Um, you know, because it's an important consideration. Um, I, I don't think that it's something that. You know, again, you know, based on what the attorney general has written, you know, compliance is not an option. So we're doing it. But this is a set of data that I think will be very helpful for us in terms of starting to plan our capital budget, um, you know, starting to plan our, our future budget for, for other services. You know, you've got to understand, you know, is this going to be a net revenue generator for the town or a net kind of revenue kind of liability, in which case you need to start to think about, you know, how you make that up. Um, one thing I wanted to share, though, is, you know, some some analysis that I've been doing about how our land use regulations affect our revenue and our potential for revenue growth. Um, so with 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 the assistance of our GIS department and the tax assessor, um, you know, I was able to generate this map of town, which shows, and this is data as of January 22, which is a little outdated, but um, still still pretty good. And it shows how much revenue each parcel in town generates. Um, and this is simply a factor of, you know, what is the assessed value? What is the factor based on residential or commercial? And you sort of come up with you know a number of of, of revenue generation. Um, these colors are coded you know tan to orange to blue to green um, in sort of deciles. So you know the, the 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 tan colors are the sort of the lowest tenth of revenue generators. Tim, quick question. Quick question. Yes. So I, I get it. At the beginning, I had said we wanted sort of basic and quick. You indicated that it was. Time for basic and quick had gone by, and we were going to get this brief. But it is now 9.40, approximately. Okay. How many more slides do you have? Um, so I, I, there, there's maybe you know six or seven slides in this kind of discussion. Um, so you know if, if we want to cut it short, then we should probably cut it short now, um, which is totally fine. You know, right. ha happy to do it. I put this at the end because... You know, I suspected that maybe it would be interesting if we had time, um, you know, but also if it's getting late, um, it's not it's not integral. Um, but I, I did want to sort of get in there that, um, you know, this is something that the the the, um, the planning board has commissioned a study of this. Um, this is going to be something that's going to be very useful for the planning board. It's going to be very useful for, um, you know, for, for the warrant committee, um, you know, to take a look at in terms of, um, you know, what the you know what what the costs and what the revenue kind of potentials are going to be um, you know for the new zoning so um, just that that's the most important part of this kind of section of the the presentation. No, and thank you, and it certainly is important. Where where we are at the very beginning stage of of this, so I appreciate that, and we would definitely look forward to getting the um, brief from the consultants. Do you have any idea when you might be getting that? 
Um, uh, not quite. They are coming in to the next planning board meeting on August 24th to present some initial findings yep. and kind of kind of talk through where they are in their methodology. Um, you know, obviously we want that and we're expecting it before town meeting. Um, they're, they're working diligently on this. So, um, I'm hoping it's, it's soon, but we'll, we'll have a little bit of a firmer timeline, um, next week, uh, when they come in for the planning board. Does anybody have any other questions for Tim while we're here? Is there, are, are there any, if anybody has their hand up on Zoom and we can't see it, just jump in. Does anybody have any questions? Are we going to be um, getting a copy of this presentation, Tim? Um, we're going to be posting it on the, um, the planning department page. Let me just bring that up just so I can show you. Um, at, on townofmilton.org. Um, if you go to departments, planning and community development, can you still see my screen? Yes. Um, on the left side menu, there's the top item is uh, MBTA communities multifamily zoning requirement. This has all the information that we have about MBTA communities, um, kind of a brief rundown, um, you know, some some resources in terms of um, state websites and other tools, and then everything that we've ever done, um, every presentation, every recording of every forum that we've done um, gets posted up here. So we'll be posting this presentation um, tomorrow morning. It'll be here on this website. You can go back and look at previous forums. Um, if you're really a sicko, you can go to the very first one we did and kind of do them in order and learn everything that I know about this stuff, um, you know, which could be interesting, but, um, you know, definitely, um, you know, take a look at some of the more recent um, presentations just to get a flavor of it. And, and again, I, I am making myself 100% available to, to any members of the committee, um, you know, that, that have any specific questions or want to kind of talk this through on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I'm happy to take the time to do that. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I know that, you know, members of the Warren Committee will be watching the meetings at the planning board. We'll be watching your presentations at the select board. We, we look forward. I'm sure that you will come again, you know. And, uh, and, and thank you for all of your hard work to the town. It's evident um, that th this is serious time. And and a, and a and a level and a and a level of professionalism that the town is lucky to have. So thank you. Well, I, Dave, I, I really do appreciate that, and and I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you all. Um, I, I don't do it nearly enough, um, so I'm I'm glad I'm, I'm glad that I'm here. Um, you know, really important to keep you all kind of on on as as cutting an edge of this stuff as possible um because you know obviously you do have a extraordinarily important role in, in in the town meeting process so thank you very much for the invitation thank you very much for the opportunity um and you know again give me a buzz have me back if you start to have some some kind of collective questions and uh, i'm sure we'll be seeing much more of each other yes. in the next couple months thank you thank you thank you okay So <clears throat> we've had our presentation. You know, we're not we're we're certainly not voting on anything tonight. You know, um, we we can we can have a discussion. 
but again, like, you know, I don't think that we're getting to the ultimate issue here. We're very early on, you know, but, but we are, we are a committee. Is there, is there anything that anyone would like to, to, to bring up to discuss tonight? Is there anybody on Zoom that I can't see your hand that you want to talk about something? You could just go ahead and shout it out. Okay. If 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 nobody, I don't have anything. Is there a motion on the floor? Or from the committee? I'll make a motion to adjourn. Is it seconded? I'll second. Is there any objection? We're adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. All right.